Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 125 of the Branson Pony Podcast, where tonight, well, we learn that Sean has fallen in with a rascal. <laughs> and I, I didn't expect that. Well, I've brought only a little money with me, too. <laughs> Folks, we'll head over to the common room in just a moment. But first, I am Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who does have rather a rascally look now that I think of it, Alan Sisto. <laughs> That is true, but unfortunately, I lack the lineage of tonight's mysterious vagabond. Well, that you do. I mean, although, you know, we don't really know his lineage yet. I mean, we don't know. We don't know his life story just yet. You know, no. Hollywood hasn't made a biopic of Strider the oh, Ranger yet. I feel a really bad segue coming on. <laughs> you and everyone else who heard <laughs> last week's episode, because, true. yes, as I promised last week, we're going to spend our intro time this episode talking about the Hollywood biopic blowing up your social media feeds. That's right. Tolkien, now playing at a theater near you. In a world. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you got to say, right? You got the movie theater voice. Well, I suspect most of you have heard about this film by now. Tolkien was released by Fox Searchlight Pictures on May 10th here in the United States. Over in the UK, it was released the week before on the 3rd of May. It was directed by Dominic Karakowski from a screenplay written by David Gleason and Stephen Beresford and, I'm quoting here, explores the formative years of the renowned author's life as he finds friendship, courage, and inspiration among a fellow group of writers and artists at school. The film stars Nicholas Holt of X-Men and Mad Max Fury Road fame as John Ronald Ruel Tolkien himself. It's also starring Lily Collins as Edith Bratt, the eventual Mrs. Tolkien, and a host of others. There's uh, Cole Meany in there from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, right, Alan? Mm -hmm. uh, well, and Next Gen originally before that. Uh, Chief O'Brien got around, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, definitely a face and a name I knew, but, uh, you know, I'm not up on my Star Trek. No. So he played Father Francis Morgan. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the always amazing Derek Jacoby as Professor Joseph Wright. Speaking of Jacoby, did you know that he narrated the audiobook version of Farmer Giles of Ham? I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool. It's one that I still got to get a hold of, but yeah. I'm going to have to look for that. Very cool. Both Sean and I went to go see Tolkien a few days early. On mm -hmm. May 7th, Tolkien played at the Montclair Film Festival in Montclair, New Jersey. Neither of us attended the New Jersey screening, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Following no. the screening was a Q&A panel with the director and the two leads, hosted by Tolkien superfan Stephen Colbert. About 400 cinemas around the country showed the film early that evening, along with the Q&A panel simulcast, or delayed cast, if you will, for me, after the movie. Oh, that's right, because West Coast, yeah, it would have been yeah. pretty early for you. So they delayed <laughs> yeah, it. definitely. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the movie, and we'll be talking a little bit about the Q&A panel. And right. I think it goes without saying, but we're going to say this anyway, this discussion is going to contain spoilers for the film. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it yet and you don't want spoilers, you may want to skip ahead about, I don't know, maybe 30, 20 or 30 minutes, minutes in this podcast. Yeah maybe 30 and see where we are Yeah, and see if we've gotten through it by then. So once again, <laughs> spoilers follow. Skip ahead Absolutely. now if you don't want to hear those. Yes, that's right. So why don't we go ahead and get started? All right. Well, I'm going to start with my overall reaction. We're going to get to some kind of a list of the good and bad, but my overall reaction, to be honest, was, I hate to say this, sort of meh. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has its wonderful moments, as we're going to get to in a little bit, and its weaknesses as well. But on the whole, it didn't strike me as anything really substantially better than just mediocre. Now, granted, that puts it in better company than the Hobbit films, but still. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> that's a low bar, man. Yeah. I mean, if I were going to give it a rating on a five-star scale, I'd probably land on a three, nothing higher. I know that's not going to go over well with some. 
there are a lot of folks out there who's going to love it because it's Tolkien, and others are going to hate it because of the artistic liberties that are taken. I ended up sort of in the middle, and that's not going to please anybody. But the truth is, it's a middling movie, <laughs> so that's kind of why I landed there. <laughs> I mean, really. Don't get me wrong. I, I want to make this clear. A lot of love and effort really did go into this. That That is absolutely evident. There were some small details and little nods to knowledgeable fans that made it clear this was not just a an attempt at cashing in. Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely. And I have to say that the Q&A, which we'll discuss in more detail shortly, really did help explain some of the film's shortcomings, uh, but not all of them to my satisfaction, as we'll find out. My big concern, though, is I, I kind of wonder what audience is going to really enjoy this film. The hardcore fans, hardcore Tolkien fans, are going to be split. Some will despise the factual inaccuracies, uh, while others are going to enjoy it just because it's Tolkien. But that niche, that hardcore Tolkien fan niche, isn't as big a niche as a movie studio needs to be successful. And I'm not sure a general audience is going to enjoy the story enough to propel this film to any level of success. Yeah, yeah, I see where I see what you're saying, and and I can't really disagree with any of that. I mean, I I have a lot of the same reservations. I, I think I'm still somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I probably am more at like a three and a half stars out of five. It's fair. Not much more than that, but probably a solid three and a half. I did enjoy it in general. Mm-hmm. There were some yeah. good performances there. I thought it was very beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. It was it was an entertaining enough film to watch. And you know, like you, I I really appreciated the fact that you know this really was a love letter to Tolkien and his work. Mm-hmm. Dome Karakowski yeah. is a fan. That was really clear from the Q&A. He's not yeah. just a Hollywood filmmaker looking to, to cash in on Tolkien fever. Like he said, this was a passion project. Yeah. And his love for Tolkien does shine through. But with all that said, like you said, it is kind of hard to know who this film was made for. I mean, yeah. it's it's not all that faithful to Tolkien's biography. No. Broad strokes are there, but some details are inserted and, and kind of invented. Other details are left out. Yep. And all throughout, things are presented kind of out of order to when they actually happened. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Granted, I don't expect absolute faith to the biography in a biopic film. They're just, they're never faithful because human lives don't follow three-act narrative structure, you know? No, no. In order to comply with uh, the canons of narrative art, if I can borrow a phrase from (laughs) Tolkien's letters, filmmakers just have to take liberties because- I can only hear Shippy's voice saying that. I know, right? Yeah, from that that lecture, yeah. Absolutely. But filmmakers, they have to take liberties. It just kind of goes with the territory. Of course. I think you have to expect that going in. Mm -hmm. And moreover, filmmakers are going to pick and choose moments from that person's life to tell a particular story that fits a certain theme. And I think that Karakowski's done that. He's kind of focusing on Tolkien's friendships with the TCBS, his relationship with Edith to a slightly lesser degree. Surprisingly, that Mm -hmm. kind of takes a little bit of a backseat to the TCBS, I think. So anything that doesn't drive those two themes home is going to be left out. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I know all that. And going into a biographical film, I do kind of accept that. I'm satisfied enough if I get an entertaining story that at least does justice to to the broad strokes of the person right. whose life is being depicted. And I was generally satisfied. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, with all that said, I mean, if I want to if I want a biography, I'll go read Humphrey Carpenter. I'll go read John yeah. Garth. That's uh, fair. I, I just would love to see one of those books turned into a documentary. But, well, know, sure. A documentary is different Absolutely. from a biopic. I would yeah. love to see a documentary of Tolkien's life, but but you're yeah. not going to get that with a biopic. No. With all that said, though, you know, going back to the question of who's this film made for. So many liberties are taken with Tolkien's life that I think people like us who have read biographies of Tolkien might be put off by some of the liberties mm-hmm. that they take. And oh, yeah. at a minimum, I think we're going to be disappointed that some of our favorite moments are left out. You know, we're going to be yeah. disappointed at some of the stuff that's that's taken out. And I know we both got a list of mm-hmm. those things. We got a list, yeah. 
And then on the other hand, as a film, you know, just speaking independently of myself as a Tolkien fan and just as a, as a movie fan, mm-hmm. there are still some issues with pacing and with the storytelling yeah. of the film that yeah. that kind of makes me wonder how much I can recommend it to the average person. You know, if you right. if you walk in cold and you know nothing about Tolkien, do you walk away with a complete story? Sort of, but you know, there there's some there's some misses there too. There really are. Yeah. And and again, I think general audience is going in completely cold. I think they're going to be disappointed that we you don't see them write the Hobbit. I mean, okay, yeah. you do. Well, write, okay. One he writes line, the first yeah. line at the end, but it doesn't touch on how the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings came to be because it's, no. it's covering the early period of Tolkien's life. Yeah, and that's a, a great section of his life to cover. I think. Oh sure. I mean, I think that's probably where more drama. There's probably more drama oh, in that yeah. part of his life than his later life. Significantly more. Yeah. I don't know the Lit Lang divide. You know, there's a lot of drama there. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Not quite as cinematic, maybe. No, probably probably really hard to depict visually, yeah. as, uh, as Karakowski yeah. might say. And I do think that Karakowski tries to throw a few bones towards the Lord of the Rings. Obviously, oh, yeah. people have heard about some of the visual elements that that yeah. kind of echo Lord of the Rings. But and that one moment when he says the word fellowship, yeah, like, like yeah. it just hits him like a bolt out of the blue. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. You know, it's it's kind of it's yeah. harmless, but it's yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I mentioned that in my, you know, a lot of this is going to kind of be redundant with our Facebook Live discussion that we had uh, over the weekend. And, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners are following us on Facebook that also happen to watch that video. But if you do, you'll hear my summary of the film, if I were to take it up into two words, uh, borrowed from Alan R., is mostly harmless. Of course, he borrowed those from Douglas Adams, but that's (laughs) kind of what this is. It's just there. It's not, it's meh. I'd go farther than meh. I'd say it's pleasant. But yeah. it's not perfect, and no. it's not Tolkien's biography. It's not a documentary. No, and that's true. But let's go ahead and start off with the good stuff, right? And let's go ahead and list some of the things that we think they really nailed, things that we yeah. really enjoyed. Uh, they may not have necessarily nailed these in terms of accuracy. They just nailed them in terms of a cinematic presentation. presentation. Cinematic right. presentation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you go first. First thing that comes to mind, costuming. And there's a, an opportunity to give a shout-out to Jez Hunt and Ancestor Leathercrafts. Uh, Jez is a longtime <laughs> yeah. listener of the show. He's the armorer on the movie and does a fantastic job. An amazing job, Jez. Great, great work yeah. there, man. It was so cool to see your name in the credits. I knew he had worked <laughs> on it because he had told us he'd worked on it. But uh, but when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, I pulled my phone out and I took a picture and I forgot my flash was on. So oh, no. <laughs> I got, oh, no. <laughs> I got a dirty look from the people next to me and then the picture came out blurry anyway. But oh. I did see your name in the credits, Jez, and I was super stoked when I saw that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I like that. I'd say along with that, the sets and locations. I thought they did a really good job mm-hmm. uh, with with all of that. Really, all of the locations were well chosen, you know, well shot. Mm-hmm. I particularly enjoyed the moment where he was walking with Professor Wright on Addison's Walk. I have to admit, I think I enjoyed that the most because I was just there in October, and it was yeah, I bet, very yeah. personal for me. I mean, it, it almost brought tears to my eyes to see that again. Mm-hmm. Wonderful moment. Casting of young Tolkien and the TCBS, I thought was a really good, the young versions of both of those, really, mm-hmm. really well done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like that. And speaking of the the young Tolkien, I really like, there's a scene early on where Tolkien's mother is reading him the story of Sigurd. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. To me, that kind of captured the essence of the, the great green dragon anecdote. Mm-hmm. Not in a literal way, but, but it kind of drives the point home for general audiences that, you know, his yeah. mother was an influence on him in terms of you know, his love of these stories. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And I love that they chose that particular story as well. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, of course. We, yeah. we know that that one was really important to him. 
one of my favorite moments of the film. I love the moment when Tolkien recited the line uh, from Christ from the poem about mm. Arendel and Middenyard. <laughs> Man, you know, I love that one. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. that was just brilliant. That that was awesome. Although I have to say, I was surprised they didn't have him actually translate Middenyard. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah and you're say right. Middle Earth in modern English. I mean, fans uh-huh. like us know what that word means, but I would think they would want to make that explicit for the general audiences. And Very I thought that was explicit. kind of a, yeah, kind a, of a missed opportunity. Too. But mm-hmm. I loved the bits of Old English and Middle English throughout. Oh, yeah. That yeah. scene of uh, young Tolkien reciting Chaucer from memory uh, on his first day at great. King Edward School. That was with perfect pronunciation. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a little. OK, a little contrived. Come on. He's like a sure. middle schooler. But it was it was fun. And it's just <laughs> it just kind of gets at that that image of Tolkien that we have as this brilliant philologist. That was great. You're right. That was a wonderful moment. The reading from the Battle of Malden poem. With I Wright. was about to go there. Yeah, yeah. me too. That was um, a yeah. That oh, was great stuff. Thought shall be the harder, heart the keener, courage the greater, as our might lessens. And and the, the where they where they fit that into where the story. Where they put I that? Was great. You're not kidding. Yeah. You know, as he's talking to Professor Wright, and then the, the other student walks in, and you know, we're at war. England's at mm-hmm. war. What a moment that was. Yeah. That whole Professor Wright subplot, I thought was great. I really could oh, have yeah. spent more time there. I kind of wish we had. Have I mentioned I'm a huge Derek Jacobi fan? I mean, I've been like a huge fan of his since I, Claudius. I, oh, he I, is something, isn't he? I would have loved to have seen more of him. Honestly, that was yeah. my only complaint. There is that, I think this was on Addison's Walk, wasn't it? Where they're actually yeah, it was. talking about the etymology of oak. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of fun. Although I have to say, having read Tom Shippey, I know that oak was one of Tolkien's personal symbols for the uh, the lit professors at Oxford, not the Lang professors. Oh my professors. goodness, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. yeah. The, the Lang professors, the philologists were the birches. So maybe they right. should be talking about the etymology of birch instead. But it was, <laughs> well, that that was a super cool really, moment. Really inside, inside joke to- there. That's but... seriously inside, yeah. <laughs> On a more serious note, I have to say, I wasn't nuts about the timing of when it came in and all of that because it, it's not factually consistent. But I really did like that they included that letter from G.B. Smith, mm-hmm. you know, my, my chief consolation if I'm scuppered tonight. That that letter, yeah, it brings tears to my eyes to hear it every time. And even though yeah. it was, you know, in the wrong time part of the of the story, is the wrong sto- wrong timeline, it still moved me deeply. Yeah. And I'm sure the filmmakers would say that, oh, well, that's where it needed to be for dramatic purposes. But I sure. also did not like where it was brought in. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. at the end, after Smith's death, you know, Tolkien in the hospital recovering from trench fever. Yeah. In fact, I, I actually put it as one of my big problems with the film. Yeah, uh, exactly. Which I'll get into a little bit later. That was but a hard the, moment for me to choose. I The, the letter itself, I'm just glad the they included beautiful, it. The letter's beautiful, of course. Yeah, yeah it's, it's good yeah. that they included it. You're right. I should give it yeah. more credit for that. But but you're right, too. It's Where it was included and the way it was included, it, it should have been done more, more accurately. Yeah. But. And I know, look, folks, I know they have their reasons for doing this stuff. Sure. Um, of course. Of course. You know, but. I'm not making a biopic, so who am I, you know, who am I right. to speak, right? I mean, we're allowed to have opinions about it, you know. Of and, course and, we are. But, but, <laughs> In uh, fact, that's rather our jobs at this point. But, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I thought one of the things I really enjoyed about the film was the way that Karakowski made it clear that Tolkien was both a word nerd and an artist. Mm, you know, that yeah. not just the, the Old English and Middle English and the conversations with Edith about created languages, but then also the visual art that he would draw and, and put up on the walls. I may not have been nuts about all of it. it. It felt, it didn't feel entirely consistent with Tolkien's own artistic style, but I love that they made that relevant to him because he was an artist. They made a point of of depicting it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We've already said that Samantha Karakowski just has a tremendous appreciation for Tolkien. Oh, yeah. He did do That's his clear. homework and that was clear in everything 
Mm -hmm. There are several moments with Edith. Actually, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, maybe my favorite scene in the movie, was the uh, the lunch date with Edith. Oh, and yes. The, uh -huh. the conversation they have there just showed such an understanding of Tolkien. You know, they're talking about things like cellar door and, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. trying to trying to figure out what that might mean, what cellador might mean in a story. Uh -huh. And Tolkien's got this. Oh, it's a it's a place, not a person. That was super cool. And, and the whole and idea really about that. words being more than just sounds and, and, yes. and associating yeah. the sound to the meaning. And yeah, yeah, uh, that was a that was a great moment. I I don't know that the whole conversation makes my top of the list. It makes my good, but not great. I think it could have been a lot better, but it was really a nice touch to include it at all, I have to admit. Yeah. And I did feel like the discussion about, like you said, the relationship between sound and meaning, that that's kind of a deep cut. I mean, oh, yeah. things like that's cellar like a door. advice deep cut. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, cellar door is kind of entry level, but, sure. uh, but you know, sound and meaning, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's deep. And that is. Know, did Edith actually have that conversation with her boyfriend? Probably not, but it's Probably so not, it's no. so integral to Tolkien's writing and language creation that it really worked for me at least. And yeah, and also I I don't think it was the same scene, but there was another. I think there was another point in the movie where Edith was talking about the importance of happy endings and the importance of hope. Oh yeah, and yeah, you know, you're right. I, that's on fairy stories in a nutshell. I think that slipped you know? past me actually. I was probably thinking about some factual inaccuracy instead. I need to watch it again. <laughs> yeah. I do also want to add about that moment, the the date where they talked about cellar door. In there, I enjoyed the bit where Edith tosses the lump of sugar onto the ridiculous hat of somebody in the restaurant. I have to admit, my very first reaction was, oh, that's absurd. Why are they having her do something so silly? But then I remembered something from Carpenter's biography, and I looked it up, and here's the line. Edith and Ronald took to frequenting Birmingham tea shops especially one that had a balcony overlooking the pavement. There they would sit and throw sugar lumps into the hats of passersby, moving to the <laughs> next table when the sugar bowl was empty. <laughs> That's awesome. And I just thought that was one of those nods to those of us who read the biographies, I think. And totally I right. That. And you know what? I had yeah. actually forgotten that. I'm watching that and I'm thinking, that is kind of weird. I mean, it's kind of yeah. fun. But yeah. We traded notes on this, and, and you mentioned that. I was like, oh, wow, I totally forgot yeah. that from the biography. That's great. <laughs> I had, too. I was like, it's just something triggered my memory, and I had to look it up. But, yeah, indeed. Well, as we move down the scale from great to good and, and kind of less good, this is in that that just under-the-top moments. I would say the music, maybe not quite the very best, but really good. It was almost great. Had some truly great moments. Mm -hmm. I'll certainly be buying a copy. It was by Thomas Newman, who's done scores for Wally, -E, Skyfall, Spectre. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, Finding Nemo, uh, Finding Dory, going all the way back to Shawshank Redemption. He's done a lot, something like wow. a, a dozen or more Academy Award nominations, even if he hasn't actually won the big one yet. But wow. It's, it's I, pretty nicely done. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. You know, I yeah. I kind of remember impressions of the score. I don't really remember, like, any particular piece yeah. of music. But, uh, well, there were some choral, some choral sections that were really okay. nicely done, I thought, too. Uh, of course, Thomas Newman, by the way, is also cousins with Randy Newman, who's done uh, oh, you know, a lot of yeah, well, yeah, very well-known Toy yeah. Story and, and yep. a ton of stuff for Pixar. A ton and, of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I would also put in that same category of just slightly not quite as good. Uh, the casting of Nicholas Holt as Tolkien. I'm not bashing his acting. I thought he did a fine job. But the thing is, it's just the casting. I kept thinking, he is too tall. <laughs> he is six foot three. Tolkien was five foot nine. He's my height. Mm. They could have had me. No, okay. I'm probably, I'm, I'm not skinny enough to have played the young <laughs> Tolkien. No. But, you know, seriously, 6'3 is too tall. Honestly, I didn't notice that. I mean, I thought Holt was good. I, I've i yeah, seen Holt good. in a lot of movies before, and he's I've seen him put in better performances before. Yeah. Where I give him a little bit of leeway is I think it, he had a really hard job 
portraying oh, yeah. the young version of a real person that we we know so much about when he was older. You know, we've True. got we've got audio recordings of him uh-huh. when he was older and you know, we've film we've interviews, read his letters. TV. Yeah, yeah, so many interviews. And for to play the young version and to, you know, to have to kind of play him like a person in his 20s or his teens and 20s. That would be hard, no doubt. That had to be tough. And I think he did a good job. And, and I think yeah. he he didn't impersonate, which was one of my favorite things. No, so, you're right. So he didn't often try to do that. they impersonate yeah. the, the person. And I didn't feel like he did that. I no. thought I thought Lily Collins was was pretty good as Edith. I, I actually thought mm-hmm. she was she was more than pretty good. I thought she was she was quite good, especially huh, okay. considering how little she had to go on. I found her portrayal of Edith. I, I thought she was really witty. I thought she was charming. Mm-hmm. I could really see her being somebody who could make Tolkien happy and who could inspire him. Yeah, I could see that. You had a different take. I know. Yeah, but... I, I, she only made my OK list. But I have to admit, you've you know what you point out about the fact that there's just not much for her to go on. And she talked about a little of this in the Q&A. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of information about Tolkien as a young man from the various biographical sources. Yeah. We don't have that much information, if any, really, on Edith. And so right. there's not much for her to go on. She had to invent it herself. I will give you this. She definitely was witty and charming. She certainly looked the part with the raven hair. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and she could dance. I mean, that was that was wonderful. I just, I, I didn't fall in love with the character like I'd hoped I would. Yeah. Uh, but, in you know, in fairness... It is a hard role because there's not a lot of information about her. Yeah. And I think that's where I enjoyed it enough when I was watching. But then when I saw the Q&A and she talked about how, you know, without knowing anything about this character, she just looked at pictures of Edith when she was a young Mm -hmm. woman. And she saw, and and I love this, she saw a cheekiness and she saw a wit. Yeah. And she distilled her character from that and also from like reading Baron and Luthien and and seeing, yeah. you know, Luthien inspired by her. And that that really came through for me. And I thought I did think she did a good job with the part. Plus Lily Collins, daughter of Phil Collins. And so now that she's right. played Edith and Liv Tyler played Arwen, I think oh, we yeah. need to get another rock star's daughter to play Luthien someday. So <laughs> Okay. That works. <laughs> I would say on the same list of good but not quite great, I did enjoy the casting of Colm Meany as Father Francis. Mm. It fell into a little bit of a, a trope, so to speak. You know, yeah, he, of, he uh, wasn't quite as fleshed out, was he? No, but I, I think that was more to do with the script than the casting. Yeah, that's I true. I did like him. I would also add on that same list the camaraderie of the TCBS. I really, really did enjoy that, except the reason it didn't make my great list is that it just had too much Dead Poet Society going on. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. In fact, I even wrote Dead Poet Society in my notes before we <laughs> yeah, even I talked bet. about this. Uh, yeah, that yeah. scene of Rob Gilson standing up to his father in the billiard room, that's straight mm-hmm. out of Dead Poet Society. Oh, totally. And it and it just didn't seem to have much of a place in this story. And it, I didn't really feel like it went anywhere after that either. No, that's the thing. That thread just sort of disappeared. We don't know anything about what happened after that. Mm-hmm. Right. You frankly could have replaced... Hellheimer. Was it Hellheimer or Hellhammer? I, gotta, I think they said it both I, ways. Yeah, yeah, but one guy kept messing well, it up. I think, it was, it was I think Gilson. Gilson kept on mispronouncing it, and I can't remember what the right way was. Hell, I, know, I think he was saying Hellheimer, and yeah. they're saying it's Hellhammer. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you could have replaced Hellhammer with Carpe Diem, and it frankly would have had the same effect. Yeah, de- definitely. Although on the topic of Rob Gilson's subplot with his dad, mm-hmm. I, I was – Got to give a little shout out to the actor Owen Teal. I did not expect to see this guy. This is uh, he played Sir Alistair Thorne in Game of Thrones for people who watched that. Uh, and he okay. played Rob's father, the headmaster. Uh, oh, Robert oh yeah. I know. Oh, I liked him. I've, I don't know yeah. that I've seen him in much else. I certainly I'd never seen I him in Game anything before. And, and I've only seen him in Game of Thrones. And I, and I saw he's got him, a strong presence in, in this one. I really that dude looks great familiar. Character. And yeah, 
Yeah. Intimidating as heck, too. <laughs> yes. And that's that's pretty much Perfect the character he's played in, in Game of Thrones, too. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. The okay. Let's move on to the kind of the next tier down. These are the mm-hmm. things where they really kind of just fouled this one off, you know, uh, if we're going to use a baseball analogy. Uh, they, they, they drop the ball, maybe. This isn't terrible, but this isn't a pick six where it's an interception run back for a touchdown. This is just an incomplete pass, okay? Yep. Somebody's going to have to explain that to our non-American football <laughs> folks, but we'll try. I would say for that, the storylines around school, King Edwards and Oxford, just kind of yeah. mostly okay. Yeah, I kind of had a problem with constantly seeing all four of the TCBS at Oxford after we're told that two oh, of them went yeah, to Cambridge. Right, right. I mean, like we see the scene with Tolkien commandeering the bus at Oxford, but it's with right. his TCBS friends. It's not the way it really happened. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that that's something that would be problematic for general audiences as well as just Tolkien fans. They're like, wait, yeah. weren't these guys going to Cambridge? Why are they? Is that next door? Time? I mean, right. right. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they don't make it clear enough, frankly, that Gilson and Wiseman are in town for the rugby match. I mean, that is why they're there. So it's okay. Was that, that what it was? Because I didn't I didn't get yeah. that at all. But yeah, I know I, I had to think back to why they were all there. What, what were they doing there? And I remembered, oh, yeah, it's because the rugby match. But here's the thing I kind of got out of that segment. Why in the world have them commandeer the bus and not take it to Carfax Tower like he did in right. real life? They just kind of like hung out on the bus. What a crazy scene that would have been, huh? Yeah. Driving down the street. I mean, just great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Again, a, a real-life moment that they could have used that would have had a ton of drama, a ton of fun, and they just left it. They there were a handful it. of those, weren't there? It was there like, were why, a number, you, yeah. why invent this when you could have taken something else? Yeah, when the reality is so much better. Mm-hmm. I would also put in this category the, frankly, way too long scene behind the theater for the ring cycle. Oh, just dragged uh, on and on and on. Did it? I mean, I like Wagner, so it was enjoyable enough for me, and I thought... I know. I thought it was fun seeing the two the the two characters together. But I, I will tell you what I did have an issue with that that flyer that he's holding in that scene. That implied they were going to see the Ring Cycle, right? Oh my goodness! That, yeah, that's that's not one <laughs> opera. That's four no. operas. That's like fifteen to eighteen hours of opera. That's usually performed <laughs> over a weekend. I don't I don't think they were hiding in that prop room on a single date. That's way too long to spend on a single date. Well, it depends on what you want to do during that. Well, day. yeah, as I'm saying that, I realize they. But they're good. They're good people. They These were are, young people. They were. They were good. Well, <laughs> I, I am not going to taint Tolkien's uh, <laughs> honor that way. No. Yeah, you're right. There's no way. Fifteen hours worth of opera. <laughs> no. That's longer than Jackson's extended version of all three films. Right. So. Right. And of course, just the artistic license that was taken in a lot of cases. I might even put this into the bad, but I, I left it in the okay because I understood the cinematic reasons for it. But having Tolkien and Edith reunite literally on the docks as he's leaving instead of marrying months before. Yeah. I mean, I understand why they did it. You know, it's for right. dramatic purposes yeah. that, you know, the dockside kiss and all that stuff. But yeah, it, it kind of bugged yeah. me too. I mean, cinematic reasons and all that. Canons of narrative odd, I suppose, require that sort of, you know, last minute drama. But, you know, they'd been reunited. They'd become engaged three years prior mm-hmm. to his departure. So right. that was just, come on, really? Right. Similarly, another timeline issue. I didn't like that they had the TCBS start when he appeared to be something like 14 years old. Yeah. They look like they're in junior high. The TCBS didn't didn't get started until he was 19. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Yeah. On the topic of timeline misses, I mean, like Edith dancing under the hemlocks when they were, you know, basically when they were kids in Birmingham, not later after the war. It was actually 1917 right. in Rus after they were married where she had uh-huh. that famous dance. And it that to me is such an iconic moment and it so is. important to Tolkien's writing that 
I really wanted them to do it right. And I mean, it was awesome to watch for a few seconds. It, it sure. gave me chills in the trailer and, and it gave me chills for a few seconds, but then that's all it was. It was just a few seconds. Yeah. And so, I mean, points for what they did because I thought it, it was, mm-hmm. it was really nice. Including done. it at all was good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think the way it was performed, I was super impressed by the fact that Lily Collins improvised her dance moves while listening to uh, Florence and the machine. But, <laughs> yeah. Finding that at the Q and A was right. interesting, wasn't it? But so points for all that, but I think, I don't know, it loses points for me for just being too short and just being at the wrong point in the timeline where it just, I agree. It didn't make as much sense to me. I agree. It could have been one of the most iconic visual moments uh, in the entire film and, and they didn't do it right. Yep. I would also say another similar timeline issue was, was having Smith die when he did and on the front lines. In fact, he, he died significantly later. He was miles behind the line arranging a, a football match for his troops when a stray artillery shell hit nearby, mm-hmm. uh, and he would later die from his injuries. It was Gilson that died on the front, right. uh, and, and that was on the very first day of the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And while we're on the battlefield, I mean... I would say that in all the visual allusions to oh, Tolkien's yeah. work, you know, the Balrog, and then there's what what I thought was Morgoth. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. thought it was Sauron, but it seems like no, Morgoth to it me. had to be Morgoth, right. The the smoke hands and all that stuff that's oh, meant yeah, to suggest yeah. that Tolkien is sort of envisioning Middle Earth on the battlefield. I got right. what he was going for, but it just didn't quite work for me. Yeah, me neither. I just wasn't a huge fan. I mean, it, it was well shot, don't get me wrong. Uh, part of that, of course, being due to the amazing uniforms, Chez. Um, I, I, <laughs> oh, yeah. The, I just wasn't a fan of the hallucination fever dream concept. It just it felt like the film was suggesting that much of Tolkien's legendarium was inspired by hallucinations. You know, that's obviously not true. Right. Uh, but I will admit the director's commentary on this uh, in the Q&A panel helped clear it up a bit for me. It still wasn't mm-hmm. one of my favorites, but it probably moved it from absolute, you know, this was terrible to, okay, I didn't really like this, but all right. Yeah. And, you know, I'll admit, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times now. And so I I don't think I quite got that those were like trench fever hallucinations at the time. Sure. He was obviously sick, but I don't know. It just didn't that didn't quite come through to me. So it didn't kind of put me off as much, but it was still I'm thinking at least the last sequence, the very last where it starts to get really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you're right. I didn't get it when I was watching it, though. It just it was just kind of weird to me. Yeah. I remember thinking the same thing when I saw the preview in December that that just this was weird to me, mm-hmm. but having the Q&A panel helped a little bit. Yeah. So here's the, the, the how do they miss this? These are the things that, why didn't they include these? Uh, they should have because these would have been great cinematic moments, but they didn't. And why? The first thing that jumps out at me, I love this moment in the biography, the Carpenter biography, that story about Tolkien seeing the Welsh language on train cars. That's a visual moment. Would have been perfect for him to see them easily included. And they didn't. I don't get it. I was actually more surprised that they didn't include anything about his discovery of Finnish because, oh, I mean, yeah, especially yeah. because there's a lot of early Quenya thrown around and true. The director is well, actually director. Finnish. Yeah. Yes, I, would, I would have thought he would have jumped on that, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we all have those yeah. moments of like, how did they miss that? <laughs> yeah. Well, another, how did they miss that was simply just not enough about his mother, just not enough about her influence on his life. And I think yeah. we'll get to, I think one of the reasons why they didn't in, in just a bit, but I would also add to that in, in terms of his early life, where was his amazing early poetry? I, I Granted, there was the nod to it in the cellar door talk, but that was about it. Yeah, you're right. This one's just personal to me. I might be the only person who really wanted to see the TCBS guys performing Aristophanes in Greek, but there's none of that. <laughs> okay, I might not be the only one. Tom H. might also yeah, be yeah. listening to this and, and thinking that he would have liked to see that. I too, would have but... liked to have seen that, but come on. I, that, that's probably- <laughs> I know, I know. That's, yeah. that's deep. 
that's a deep You know, a, a, another thing, another classic visual moment that I don't understand why they missed. Why did they have him wrap up the film writing the opening line of The Hobbit like he was just trying to, to write? He was grading exam papers and he wrote it on the back of an exam paper. That's a classic anecdote that so many people know and a total missed opportunity. I agree. And I think that's something that a lot of general audiences know. It's actually the first yeah. thing I learned about Tolkien before I even right. read The Hobbit. I, I knew how he started writing it. And yeah. Yeah. That just, I just don't get that. Yeah. For me, I, this is kind of a big one for me. Cutting out all the letters that the TCBS wrote to each other in the oh, trenches. Yeah. That Absolutely. to me was a huge missed opportunity for some great moments of real human drama that actually happened. Unlike, yeah. you know, some of the invented dramatic points that we got instead. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like we were talking about earlier, you know, Smith's chief consolation letter in the movie. Tolkien gets that after Smith's death, after he's back in England with trench fever. And it was strongly mm. implied that that letter was one of the last things that G.B. Smith wrote. Right. In reality, that letter was sent February 3rd, 1916. Tolkien read it before he shipped out to France. That's exactly right. Smith died 10 months later, and they spent all that time writing letters to each other. Really. Mm -hmm. And to the other members of the TCBS. Yeah, and Absolutely. to the other members of the TCBS. And lots of really good, you want beautiful to letters. flesh out that story about the inspiration that the TCBS gave him. Why yeah. not do that? Yeah, I mean, why exactly. fabricate something when the real-life version is more dramatic? Yeah, exactly. I get that. Yeah. I mean, like, there, there's the... The letter that Tolkien wrote to G.B. Smith when he actually heard about Gilson's death, because Smith was still alive, yeah. it was August 1916. Right. It's actually letter number five in Carpenter's Letters volume. You know, that's the something has gone crack letter. Oh, yeah. It is I, absolutely oh. heartbreaking. And it, heartbreaking. there's yeah. nothing of it here. No. And to me, that seems really strange, especially because I kind of felt like Gilson was a bigger presence in the movie than Smith was among the TCBS guys. Yeah, till the end, right. Until the end. Yeah, Gilson was the one who was kind of more charismatic when they were younger. Sure. And he's he's the one who goes off and does the crazy stuff like, you know, <laughs> flirting with the barmaid, you know, stuff like that. The barmaid to marry him. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and so we didn't see any of that. And that was such a great letter. I don't know. I just having Tolkien yeah. learn about Gilson's death later after he's in the hospital, after Smith is also dead. I don't know. It just. Yeah. It felt like an afterthought, didn't it? Oh, oh, by the way, and, and Gilson's dead, too. I mean, it just. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's like yeah. all of a sudden Smith became sort of the focus. Yeah. Yeah. This is another thing. I don't know that it's bad, but it, it was something that was kind of glaring in its absence. Uh-huh. Baron and Luthien are never named, oh, even yeah. in yeah. Uh, even in the final caption of the film yeah. that says- I noticed and that. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like the names of two of Tolkien's characters are on- Right. Ronald and Edith's tombstones. I think it's something about, like the name of a mortal man and an immortal elf are on their right. tombstones. Right. Yeah, they, exactly. Okay. They kind of encapsulate the story. And all I can figure with that was that maybe because he didn't have rights to oh, adapt the published yeah. works, maybe Karakowski maybe. couldn't name them. But I, I kind of questioned the decision to tiptoe around it because it just, to me, saying some characters, a mortal man and, a, right. and an elven woman, that just seemed, it, it just seemed very jarring. And I think if he just hadn't it said did. anything about the tombstones, it, it, it would have been less noticeable. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is the studio didn't want to risk including the names. I mean, there's a minimal payoff, right? Only the hardcore are going to know the names, and we already know about them anyway. Uh, and then there's also the risk that, you know, if the estate were upset with that or felt like they were violating some sort of copyright, maybe not even the estate because, well, no, Baron and Luthien, that would be that would be under the estate. I was thinking of Lord of the Rings stuff where it's yeah. uh, Saul Zen's company. Although Baron and Luthien are mentioned in Lord of the Rings, aren't they? You they say are. like only the hardcore would know the names, but I mean, anybody who can remember 
Vigo Mortensen. <laughs> the appendices, or even yeah, that. the chapter uh, chapter Strider, right? Yeah. Or is that a knife in the dark? When he's it's knife in the dark, isn't it? Knife in the dark. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So that was just one one little thing. I mean, I guess moving on to some of the really big gripes. Um, yeah. And boy, we're taking a lot longer than we thought to do this. But folks, this is a, an important film, so we're is, we're going to talk is, about it. This is this is the unfiltered. This is the Prancing Pony podcast treatment. Yeah, full treatment. Yeah, I would just say that in contrast to this segment, the timeline of the film was so rushed. <laughs> I, I think, well put. <laughs> I think it could easily have been a three-hour film instead of the yeah. two hours it was. Um, and I realize that would have presented problems too, but. Yeah, I don't know. One moment you've got Tolkien working with Joseph Wright on a philology paper at Oxford. The very next scene, you see him enlisting in the army and going off to war. And then yeah. later in the movie, you see him as a professor. You never saw him graduate. You never exactly. saw him finish or his get studies. married or get married. Wait, yeah. you never. That's that's right. You never yeah, saw him get never married. See did you get married? No, you don't. It's so weird. And so there are just some things that are just strangely left out. And I think it would be hard for a person with no knowledge of Tolkien's life to really engage oh, yeah. with the story, you know? Absolutely. There's lots of that stuff. I I keep flashing back to that moment after their mother died. And it was even weird then because you're not certain that she's dead. You, you know, she's unconscious. They come in, she's slumped over uh, and he hugs her and you, you think, oh man, she must have died. But it's not like they, it's not like we see a funeral scene or, or anything along those lines. It just immediately jumps to a scene apparently months later because he talks about how they've right. been living in other places. When Father Francis is trying to get him at the boarding house, that was just this really odd jump that didn't make any sense. Yeah. And and partly as a result of some of these odd jumps, we do get these incomplete story arcs, don't we? I mean, we've, yeah. we've mentioned yeah, we a do. few You're of right. them. We talked earlier about the confrontation between Gilson and his dad. That uh-huh. doesn't go anywhere. Nowhere. Yeah. There's a scene where Christopher Wiseman flirts with Edith. And then, oh, yeah. you know, remember yeah. Tolkien gets mad. He takes Edith out of there. And, <laughs> yeah. and I love fight. the scene no, yeah. where she, like, they have a fight and Edith is like yeah. giving him, giving him grief oh. for, you know, taking him out of it, taking her out of there. I thought it was right. a great moment for Edith. I thought, you know. It was real strong character. She's strong. Yeah. She's, she's witty. She can, she can hold her own with these brilliant uh-huh. young men. And I thought that's great. Yeah. But then it never goes anywhere in terms of his relationship with Edith or his relationship with Wiseman or no, I, I, I don't know. It, it, yeah, it I mean, unless strange. maybe that's the the rationale behind Tolkien punching Wiseman on the bus, but that's, that's significantly maybe. later in the yeah, story. Maybe, so but, yeah, if that's yeah. the connection, we don't, there's nothing to make that connection. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, when we talked about the, the, where did the time go bit, you know, the recovery from trench fever to being a full professor with kids. I mean, what, like seven or eight years have gone by at least judging by the age of the kids, maybe more mm-hmm. like 10. And he didn't even look a day older either, which was weird. Yeah. They didn't try to age him. He looked like the same 19-year-old or, you know, 24-year-old that he'd been looking like the entire mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Lots of passage yeah. of time strangeness with the movie. Yeah. Well, this next thing that I want to say, uh, it, it could come across as controversial, if, especially if you don't listen to us on a regular basis. I think if you do, you'll know that we don't have anything against anybody. Uh, we certainly don't yeah. have anything against the uh, the LGBTQ community, but I have to admit along those lines, I didn't like what I thought was a very obvious implication that G.B. Smith was romantically attracted to Tolkien. That scene, it was the morning after Tolkien had gotten drunk and they're at that fencing match. And it's where Tolkien ends up meeting Joseph Wright. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where G.B. Smith talks to him about unrequited love that I felt was evidence of this romantic attraction. Now, there was no evidence in real life to support that sort of implication, and it seemed really forced. That was something that came up Mm. in the focus group that I was involved with in December at the preview screening, 
And a lot of participants praised the inclusion, right? I mean, you know, we've got to have inclusion and all that. Sure, yeah. And so they wanted that, and they actually wished it had been made even more obvious. And I really, I, I couldn't get away from that. It, it really kind of broke With no that basis scene. in fact. Right, yeah. right. Well, just with yeah. no basis in fact. That's really interesting because I know we've talked about this a few times, and I'm going to be totally honest. I, I do see how you got that. And uh-huh. going back and thinking about the scene, I yeah, I guess maybe I might have missed something because I've heard hmm. from a few others who said the same thing. I didn't really get that from those scenes at all, honestly. I mean, huh. okay. to me, what I saw there was something more like the love that we see, well, let's just say between male characters in The Lord of the Rings, like the love Sam okay. has for Frodo. And hmm. to me, when I watched that scene, I thought, oh, that's what he's doing. He's showing that hmm. that, that deep but platonic love between like okay. Sam and Frodo. And right. yeah, I know people try to read into that too. They try to look for romantic well, yeah. subplot there too. But I think yeah. Tolkien was so good about showing men having these strong friendships and he was not afraid was. To, to show men love each other in a platonic way. So that to me is, that's what I got from that. I felt like that was an homage to that. But Man, you know, if I'd gotten that, I would have loved it. I, I mean, truly. I... Well, I've heard what you said from a, from a couple of different people. So yeah, okay. I don't know. Yeah, I see that's the thing. I would have loved it if I felt like that's what he was trying to portray. And I think it would have felt that way if they hadn't had Smith say, and I, I have to say I'm paraphrasing because of course I can't take literal notes as I'm in the theater. He talks about love that is not or cannot be returned. And he's he's talking about an unrequited love. The love between Sam and Frodo, this deeply collegiate sort of love, that's mutual. It seemed clear to me though that Smith's love for Tolkien was unrequited, which would make it something different than the brotherly love that Tolkien clearly had for Smith. I mean, Tolkien loved Smith. We see that. He practically sacrifices his life trying to find him on the front lines. That's love. He demonstrates love for Smith, but we're talking an unrequited love, which I don't know. Maybe I read too much into it. I don't think so. It felt like that was something they were going for, that it was a a subtle under thing. It it totally could have been. I didn't didn't see it, and I didn't see it as as obvious, certainly. I would say, I mean, I do think I think Sam loves Frodo more than Frodo loves Sam. I'm going to go ahead and put that That's out there. That's we'll, fair. That's we'll fair. No, we'll talk I, more about I can't this disagree. when we see them closer. And I think maybe... It may be a slightly different kind of... of maybe so. It's a, yeah. it's a dedication. Yeah. Partly maybe well, remember, it's like the class. Endor versus Indil. Remember yes. that? The devotion. That was a great conversation. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. And it, it was it having to do with somebody who's above you, like a, a master. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. No, that's fair. But it is still, it's still requited. Frodo certainly Mm -hmm. loves Sam and, and Tolkien certainly loves Smith. Anyway, I don't want to go too deep into that. I know we've got a lot more to talk about. Yeah. And maybe if there's a failing there, we can agree is there's, it was, it was ambiguous, wasn't it? And maybe they were trying to be ambiguous so that they could kind of straddle the line and try and be inclusive without really being inclusive, you know? (laughs) I guess. I don't know. That just threw me for a loop for a few minutes. But yeah, I think really my biggest gripe, that because that really actually pales in comparison to what my biggest gripe is. My biggest gripe is the way that religion was reduced to almost a non-existent role in Tolkien's life when the truth is significantly different. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that as somebody who shares his worldview, because of course I'm, I'm not Catholic, so I can't speak to to the level of involvement in his faith that Tolkien had. I know that he went and served mass every day as a young boy. And that's the kind of thing that they could have visualized. And I just, it felt like the only reference to religion in the film was as a source of conflict between Tolkien and Father Francis. Mm-hmm. That's really it. That was the only really explicit reference to religion. Now, I do agree, was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a, this devout Catholic. And I can't help but think that the removal of all these 
you know, Christian elements, uh, aside from the, the brief line from the Christ poem, was kind of an attempt to maybe sanitize the religious Tolkien. He was overtly, deeply religious. And today's audience isn't for the most part. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a mostly secular audience these days. I get that. That's just how it is. Uh, and the director even suggested as much. He talked about a scene involving the young Tolkien with last rites for his mother and how that didn't go over with focus groups. They didn't understand it. They didn't identify with it. Well, of course not. You know, if it's a secular audience, they're not going to get that. Even I don't, because of course, as a Protestant, I, you know, last rites is alien to me. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't take more than a few minutes reading Tolkien's letters to understand the importance of his faith. And I, look, I get it when you're setting aside to look at his stories, you need to set it aside mm-hmm. because you don't want to read too much into it. You know, there's that danger of trying to read it as an allegory. His stories are not an allegory. Right. Set aside that understanding. But when you look at the man himself, I, I think you need to look at that a little more deeply. Yeah. I, I Hey, look, I get it. I, I totally agree with you. I think you're right. Uh, I'm, and I'm saying this as a person who lives a secular life. You know this. Right. We talked about right. it a few times. It hasn't come up recently on the podcast. but Well, no. First season when we talk about the yeah, creation of the universe. <laughs> right. Exactly. It came, up, it came up a bit more. But uh, to me, as a secular person, but knowing how important Tolkien's religion was to him. Yeah, I felt the absence of it. And yeah. it was interesting to me what you just now said about setting it aside to look at his stories, but not to look at the man himself. I, I'm remembering mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. from the Q&A where Stephen Colbert, who is deeply Catholic from what I understand, yeah, he is, he's, he's a very devout Catholic. He pointed out in the Q&A how Tolkien kept overt references to religion out of his work. Right. But again, for a film focusing on his life, I do think a closer look at how being Catholic affected his life would have been welcome. And yeah, Karakowski yeah. did say that it wasn't intentional. He just said that visualizing religion is challenging. Now, I'm yeah. not a film director, but I, I do feel like you could have visualized his faith by showing how it defined his relationships. You know, the his relationships with the TCBS, the ph- philosophy of the TCBS in general, his relationship with Edith, her conversion to Catholicism. Boy, that was big. Yeah. I don't know why he left it out. Maybe it is, as you said, because it just didn't resonate as much with with modern audiences. Mm-hmm. Modern audience. And I don't right. know if that was a director decision or a studio decision, but uh, but That's I, I agree. Too. It, it yeah. definitely it definitely was left out. And I think for anybody who knows a lot about Tolkien's life, it you feel the absence. You really do. I, the thing is, when you read the biographies, it's really strongly present. In Carpenter's yeah. biography, we learn that, like we talked about a minute ago, he and Hillary ended up spending a lot of time in the Birmingham Oratory. Uh, Carpenter says it soon became their real home, even though at that time they were living with an aunt. Uh, that was also the period where Carpenter says that the brothers would hurry around to serve mass for Father Francis before eating breakfast in the refectory. Later on, Carpenter points out that Tolkien recorded sadly that his first terms at Oxford had passed with practically none or very little practice of religion. But then that wasn't to last. The next year, he was attending mass regularly and had perhaps chosen to forget his lapses of the previous year. I honestly don't think it would have been hard to show the young brother serving mass or to show the college-age Tolkien struggling with his faith. Yeah, I agree. Or to show he and Edith having that conversation about conversion. Yeah. But I think I think it all goes back to what we talked about earlier, how there wasn't much about his mom and her influence. Mm, yeah. That, I think, is why we don't see as much of the religious influence, because that deep devotion to Catholicism was directly from related his mother. to his yeah. Exactly. To the Mm -hmm. deep devotion that he had to his mother, who had converted to Catholicism herself and had, as a result, been banished, essentially, from her family, had lost all support. And that's quite possibly one of the reasons why she died when she did. They didn't have the funds to try to get her 
healthy right. to, to get a doctor to regularly see her right. uh, for her diabetes, which, of course, back then was significantly more serious uh, than it is now. And it's still right. a very serious disease. It's just much more treatable. Right. It just disturbed me that they they couldn't find a way to show religion, but they could certainly find a way to make him drunk in public, which oh, <laughs> I know we talked about that before. I just find that disappointing. Like, that just seems strikingly out of character. Not not drinking, of course. We know he drank. I just think you, the whole drunk in public stumbling along like, you know, I mean, just. You don't think that a guy who enjoyed alcoholic beverages his whole life probably had one <laughs> embarrassing night once in his life. Maybe. When he just got bad news about the girl he loved. Maybe, I but don't I don't know that it would have been something that we had to see on film. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. I, I thought it was fun at it least, was. but I know I, I, yeah. I've i had a couple of nights like that in college. So um, <laughs> oh, I'm, man, I'm calling funny. an audible on this one because uh, you talk about something like that. I actually was far more offended by the idea that he almost flunked out of Oxford. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Which is totally. Like a big subplot. Are in you the movie. kidding me? What, and you're going to be sent down. Are you joking? He, that was yeah. that was ridiculous. Yeah, he did not. If you read, uh, I got this from John Garth's Tolkien at Exeter College. You'll see that he didn't do that badly when he was studying no, he classics. Didn't. He he finished with I, I think they call it a class two or a second. He wasn't he right, wasn't a, a first. Yeah. And if he wanted to pursue a career in academia, which of course he did, he probably right. should have he gotten to be a, first. a first. Yeah, but he wasn't flunking out. He wasn't going to be. What, he wasn't what was the phrase? He wasn't going to be sent, sent down. down. Yeah, no, it wasn't anything like that, and that to me was like, oh no, you just totally not unnecessary. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> but again, again, maybe it's just trying to appeal to a mainstream audience, and they, I don't know. Maybe yeah, that's true. I mean, half the people who have gone to but... college have been in danger of being sent down. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the panel because so many people aren't going to be able to see this, at least not right away. We do hope that it's included in the Blu-ray release or the digital mm-hmm. release. Uh, maybe it'll even be released sooner than that in some sort of format on on YouTube. If or we see like it that. pop up on YouTube, we will share. Oh, it we with will all share of it you. immediately. And, and yeah. if any of you see it out there on YouTube, send it to Please us do. so that we can share it. Because it was it was a great, a great discussion. It was absolutely great panel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's start off with the host. Colbert really is a pretty knowledgeable fan. I think we already know that. Yeah. Granted, he cannot pronounce smog. He pronounces it smog. Uh, and he, <laughs> You're not going to let botched that go. A, no, I'm not. He, and he botched a biographical fact about Tolkien's mother. He talked about her marrying a Catholic and being rejected by her family. But, oh, of course, that wasn't that. the case at all. Uh, Arthur was uh, was, Protestant. was Protestant. She didn't convert yeah. to Catholicism until a after few years after he died after and passing. she moved back. Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, we've made worse mistakes. So I, I have to forget. That him. is true. We can't throw stones. No. And he really did show off some some incredible knowledge. The impromptu recitation of the bath song was phenomenal. I have to oh, admit. yeah. That was, that, was that was awesome and surprising, too. I mean, he started yes. with The Road Goes Ever On, and he, he brought the bath song in, what, at the very end, I think, or close to yeah, the end. Yeah, and totally impromptu. I mean, the, yeah, the opening yeah. with The Road Song, you knew was was prepped. Was, sure, but, yeah. But the, but bath, the bath song, song was totally off the top of yeah. his head. It was well done. It was done. awesome. It was awesome. Really great. I think my favorite comment from Colbert in the Q&A was his, his comment about women in Tolkien's writings and, you know, yeah. the fact that he said, you know, they're higher than the men. You know, we've talked yep. about men marrying up in Tolkien's Always. work. And, you know, he cited mm-hmm. Luthien destroying, he said Sauron's Tower. That's Tolan yep. Gowerhoth, Stephen. Come on. You know the name. You can use it. Don't be afraid. Let your That's geek right. flag fly. Yes. He listed that as an example of how Tolkien's women have power. I loved that. I thought it yeah. resonated with the depiction of Edith in the film. I agree. My second favorite comment from Stephen Colbert was his anecdote about how he was, he was just talking off the cuff and he just said, I was listening to the Treebeard chapter on the audiobook. 
just to have mm-hmm. something like, I think he said some stillness and some light in his life. Some peace or something. Yeah. yeah. yeah it was and nice, I, and nice I just, moment. I love that. And it's, I mean, I think that's what Tolkien means to us, right? And it's just yeah. always oh, nice absolutely. to hear somebody as, you know, as a household name, a, a successful yeah. person like Stephen Colbert, just talk about his fandom with such earnestness. I thought that was neat. I agree. I really like, uh, I really like listening to him talk about it. It was great. I have to admit the director won me over, though, when near the end, he referenced the character of Tariel as a travesty. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Uh, and Colbert followed it up by saying she's non-canonical and that's the nicest thing that can be said. <laughs> well said, gentlemen. Oh, I laughed well heartily said. when I saw that. Yeah. yeah good stuff. I, I mean, we've said this a couple of times. Karakoski is a fan. I mean, he. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he absolutely he is. He traded a Colabath references with Colbert. I mean, he <laughs> yes, was talking he about reading the Father Christmas letters. Uh-huh. He actually quoted Tolkien's letter, the the uh the She Was My Luthien yes, letter. Yes, the one he, that he wrote to Christopher Tolkien that we after, recently after did in an died, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've said a, a few times now, he's not just some guy trying to cash in on Tolkien fever. No. This was no. This is a passion project for him and it, and it did show. It absolutely was. It definitely showed even with the flaws. Uh, he also earned points for me when he gave a copy of John Garth's book to Colbert as a gift. I I literally Money. shouted out yes in the theater. <laughs> People looking at me, I was like, yes. Oops. That, was, that was that was pretty awesome. Uh, I yeah, almost had a reaction like that, but this was after yeah. I had gotten the nasty look because of taking a flash picture of Jez's name in the credits. So I didn't want to <laughs> didn't want to do anything to annoy no. the people next to me again. I would have been even more impressed, though, had Karakowski given him uh, a USB stick with all of our episodes on it. That, that, that would have been wonderful, <laughs> that would actually. Have been phenomenal. If anybody yeah. would like to do that. <laughs> You're welcome to it, please. Uh, yes. I have to say, the, the explanations of both the director and, to some extent, Nicholas Holt did help me understand some of the things I didn't like so much. But I didn't buy his excuse about the centrality of faith to Tolkien's life, the whole thing about it being hard to visualize. That... I just didn't buy. I don't know if, like you said, maybe he's covering for the studio because it was a studio decision to kind of uh, sanitize it, make it more secular, uh, or if it was his own call. I don't know that it was his own call because he talked about having done a faith-based film. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall the, the name of it. He did say uh, that. Yeah. He'd also talked about having officiated at a wedding once. He he kind of, as a side, mentioned that he had been a minister. So, you know, yeah, doesn't sound to, to me like that was something that he necessarily would yeah. have chosen to do, but it may have also been a time factor, but... Yeah. Either way, it still didn't change it. But for other issues, uh, I definitely enjoyed hearing some of the explanations because it shed some light and helped me to kind of see things a little bit more differently. Uh, I loved what Nicholas Holt said about starting to do illustrations when he learned that Tolkien was an illustrator. I thought that was great. Yeah, that was really cool. I really liked Lily Collins said something about how she enjoyed being an actress because her storytelling helps people escape. Mm, that yes. was that was cool. That was just straight out of on fairy stories. I thought that yeah, was Yeah, whether she's read that or not, I don't know. But <laughs> So yeah, I'm not sure if she's read that, but she definitely she definitely connected with it and I thought that was yeah, cool. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Also glad for her that she didn't get the role of Tauriel, which I found out that she auditioned for in the Hobbit yeah, movies. That was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> good for her that she didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the uh the director repeatedly referenced the Silmarillion and when Collins was asked about being immortal. She had, they'd asked, you know, what race would you be? And she'd said she wanted to be an elf. Karakowski even talked about death being the gift to men. And that took Colbert si- by yeah. surprise. He called it a deep cut. And I absolutely <laughs> love that moment. That was pretty awesome, especially for that audience, man. Like that's, oh, yeah. that is a totally deep cut for that audience, but totally deep cut. That was cool. It was a, it was a fun panel. And if we can find a it way, was. if we, if we see it out there anywhere again, we will share it. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up here in a little bit, but I wanted to do one last thing. We wanted to talk about uh, something that listener Trotter pointed out 
Uh, it was a quote from Tolkien's letter number 13. In speaking about possible illustrations for the American version of The Hobbit, Tolkien told C.A. Firth, who was at Allen and Unwin, it might be advisable, rather than lose the American interest, to let the Americans do what seems good to them, as long as it was possible, I should like to add, to veto anything from or influenced by the Disney studios <laughs> for all whose works I have a heartfelt loathing. <laughs> Very famous line. <laughs> yes. I think we mentioned it on our postscript episode 53 way back at the beginning of season two, but I'm not sure if we brought it up on the main feed before. I don't know if we did. I might have brought it up in passing when we did our uh, our Facebook live event from Disneyland a few months ago. <laughs> Oh, Just yeah. Yeah. A few, a few I, months ago. That's almost a year ago, right? I think that was in November of, of 2018. Yeah, I guess it is. It has been a while now, but yeah. 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 My goodness. Well, you know, Trotter mentioned that he didn't think the professor would be happy with the production because it was released by Fox Searchlight Pictures. And as folks who are up on their entertainment news will know, Fox is now owned by Disney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the irony. Trotter's got a good point about that. And okay, look, I've, I've got a few responses here. I I will admit I don't personally share Professor Tolkien's heartfelt loathing of all things Disney. I think that's quite clear from some of the references I drop on this podcast. <laughs> Probably. But if I did, I would just say principal photography wrapped on Tolkien back in December 2017. So this mm -hmm. thing has been in the works since long before Disney acquired Fox in, I think, March 2019 was when they closed the yeah. deal. And I think they announced it yeah. a year before that. So it's not like Disney greenlit this project, if that helps. <laughs> but True, true. But still, I, I don't doubt that Trotter's right on, although I'm pretty sure the professor would be unhappy with this production for a lot of reasons, unfortunately. Well, yeah, that, I think that's quite clear. I never said that. I right. didn't do that. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> but, what are you doing? But again, with all that said, you know, I know it feels like we've, we've listed some good and some bad. None mm -hmm. of it stopped yeah. me from enjoying this movie for what it was. I enjoyed it. There you go. I will watch it again. I think I said mm -hmm. this. I, I'd give it three and a half stars out of five. That's a solid three and a half. Right. I will watch it again. I'm looking forward to watching it again. I will tell everyone who sees it and everyone who asks me about it, read the biographies. Absolutely. Go get a copy of Carpenter's biography. Go get a yeah. copy of Tolkien and the Great War by John Garth. Go get Tolkien yep. at Exeter College by John Garth yeah. as well. Listen to our episode 44, interviewing John Garth. Then mm -hmm. you'll have a better understanding of the facts behind what's a, an enjoyable enough, but not perfect and not completely accurate biopic. Agreed. Uh, even though I would only give it three stars, I will still watch it again when it comes out on 4K. I'll watch it with my wife and when my kids are much older with them It'd be gorgeous as well. on 4K, actually, yeah. Oh, it's going to, yeah, with HDR and all of that. It's going to, yeah. you know, UHD, I think they call it. But I have to say, for every time I watch the film, I'm going to have to go and reread Tolkien and the Great War or Carpenter's biography just to remind me of the truth. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a, a, a film shower, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it, folks, our extended thoughts on Tolkien. And if you're skipping ahead to avoid spoilers, well, you can start listening again now. And please go see the movie and let us know what you thought. As always, we'd love yeah, to hear from you. Absolutely. And now let's sit in the parlor and see if we might hear something to our advantage in the first half of Chapter 10, Strider. <laughs> the real question is, will our listeners hear anything to their advantage <laughs> in the <laughs> well next said. hour and a half? <laughs> well said, sir. Very good. Well, I'm going to have you start at the very beginning of the chapter. Well, it is a very good place to start. That's what I hear. So why don't you do that for us? Frodo, Pippin, and Sam made their way back to the parlor. There was no light. Mary was not there, and the fire had burned low. It was not until they had puffed up the embers into a blaze 
and thrown on a couple of faggots that they discovered Strider had come with them. There he was, calmly sitting in a chair by the door. Hello, said Pippin. Who are you, and what do you want? I am called Strider, he answered. And though he may have forgotten it, your friend promised to have a quiet talk with me. You said I might hear something to my advantage, I believe, said Frodo. What have you to say? Several things, answered Strider. But of course, I have my price. What do you mean? asked Frodo sharply. Don't be alarmed. I mean just this. I will tell you what I know, and give you some good advice. But I shall want a reward. And what will that be, pray? said Frodo. He suspected now that he had fallen in with a rascal, and he thought uncomfortably that he had brought only a little money with him. All of it would hardly satisfy a rogue, and he could not spare any of it. But would it satisfy a mage? Or a paladin? Uh, yeah, I'm... I mean, it wouldn't satisfy a rogue, I agree. Or but... a ranger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very well done. Very well done. So the hobbits get back to It would to the satisfy park. a bard for sure, because you it know would. bards don't make any money. No, that's true. A bard gets a few coppers and he's like, woohoo! Yeah! I'm rich. I can buy bread. <laughs> you know, I'm so eating true. this week. That is so true. You're right. My goodness. <laughs> that is that is comedy gold right there. <laughs> yep. So All right. they, they get back to the parlor and Mary, foreshadowing, is gone. And interestingly, Strider's not like shows up at the door and knocks. He's already in the flipping room. He's already room, there. Which is a little a little freaky, man. Come on. And I, and he's just there. He's not like he's hiding behind a table and he jumps no, out. He's just no. like he's just there and Calmly they don't notice him. In a chair by the door. Until they yeah. And they just don't notice him until they do. Well, probably because he doesn't say, Welcome back to your room. <laughs> I guess, maybe. I've provided your turnback service. You're, you know, there's a mint on your pillow. <laughs> I mean, what, what in the world? He's in the Holding room, his hand man. out for a tip, you know, yeah, the room exactly. that he is. I mean, yeah, you're right. Well, he's not a bard, so he's not that poor. But, <laughs> right. I mean, come on. This is a little a little bizarre. There's no knock on the door. He's just in. Like, he's got the key. He's got the master right. key. Yeah. Pippin, <laughs> Pippin's got to be like... Well, I think I might have just wet myself. <laughs> I mean, you know. it's it's a pretty understated reaction from Pippin, actually. <laughs> it really is. Uh, hi, <laughs> who are you? What do you Am want? I in the wrong room? I, I I might have actually given that entirely the wrong reading. <laughs> uh, hello, who are you? What do you want? <laughs> I like that reading. <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh, oh man. man! So Strider's offer is. I'll give you information and advice for a reward. Mm, now, mm -hmm. I can't help thinking that Aragorn really does intend, as we'll see from the reaction that he gives later, for this initial offer to be declined. But you've got a little bit on that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely. I definitely think he's uh, he's testing Frodo's judgment here, uh, kind uh -huh. of trying to teach him a lesson in caution. And uh, I'm, I'm looking, I've actually, uh, for once, I've got a physical book in here with me because uh, I don't mm -hmm. have this book electronically, but uh, I don't even know if it's available electronically. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if it is. But so the book that I've got here in my booth with me is Master of Middle Earth by Paul Coker. Yeah, it's a uh, fairly it's early a really interesting book. bit of yeah. It's it's written before the Silmarillion came yeah, out, which came is out why the, some of it in the early 70s. And I think mm -hmm. yeah, you're gonna say yeah. 
Some yeah, of it, it now is it kinda... came out between his death and the release of the Silmarillion, and mm-hmm. so it does. I, I think some of the stuff has been superseded, which right. is why the book is often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's some really, really interesting gems in there, no doubt. Yeah, there there really is, and he's actually got a whole chapter on Aragorn, and I'm going to read a little bit from that here, specifically in reference to to this particular scene. Yeah, Coker says, because of the debacle in the common room, he treats them like the children they have shown themselves to be and proposes to give them unspecified valuable information in exchange for the reward of being allowed to accompany them. The proposal is meant to be indignantly refused, and when it is, Aragorn applauds. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, by the way, we have not referenced that book yet, uh, and we should. There's some really good stuff in there. So, folks, that's another one that if you haven't picked up, I don't even know if that's still in print. Uh, I'm assuming that you can get a, a used version, at least on on Amazon. But if it is still available, we'll make sure to put a link in our show notes if you can still find it. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure if you can either. I've got a very old mass market paperback copy that's uh, mm. very old, but in very pristine condition that I got secondhand from a friend. So, oh uh, wow, nice. Yeah. So now that Frodo, and we're not going to read that part, but now that Frodo is a little bit more careful, a little bit more discreet. Strider is going to go ahead and give his information freely. He's like, all right, now I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I know. And you may still decide to give me what I want later, mm-hmm. but, but we'll find out. And that's when I'm going to go ahead and pick up with the information that he finally provides to Frodo. All right. I have quick ears, he went on, lowering his voice. And though I cannot disappear, I have hunted many wild and wary things, and I can usually avoid being seen if I wish. Now, I was behind the hedge this evening on the road west of Bree, when four hobbits came out of the downlands. I need not repeat all that they said to old Bombadil, or to one another, but one thing interested me. Please remember, said one of them, that the name Baggins must not be mentioned. I am Mr. Underhill if any name must be given. That interested me so much that I followed them here. I slipped over the gate just behind them. Maybe Mr. Baggins has an honest reason for leaving his name behind, but if so, I should advise him and his friends to be more careful. I don't see what interest my name has for anyone in Bree, said Frodo angrily, and I have still to learn why it interests you. Mr. Strider may have an honest reason for spying and eavesdropping, but if so, I should advise him to explain it. Well answered, said Strider, laughing, but the explanation is simple. I was looking for a hobbit called Frodo Baggins. I wanted to find him quickly. I had learned that he was carrying out of the Shire, well, a secret that concerned me and my friends. Now don't mistake me, he cried as Frodo rose from his seat, and Sam jumped up with a scowl. I shall take more care of the secret than you do, and care is needed. He leaned forward and looked at them. Watch every shadow, he said in a low voice. Black horsemen have passed through Bree. On Monday one came down the Greenway, they say and another appeared later, coming up the greenway from the south. Yeah, so if Strider was not testing them, <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, it's pretty obvious there. Yeah, very obvious right there. Yeah. By the way, I reserve the right to change my Strider voice in the future. I'm not sure I can maintain that for, for five seasons. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it's, That's it's sort of gravelly. It's wonderful, but I'm not sure anybody wants you to maintain it for... 
before. I mean, I think I'm not sure anybody wanted me to maintain it for 30 seconds. It may not even fit for <laughs> in people's minds. I just didn't want to try to sound like Vigo, you know? I'm, I'm, no, it's hard. I really it's, have to try to distinguish myself from the film versions yeah. of these characters. Vigo has such a such a specific way of, of speaking. He really gives that character a voice. I think I don't... Oh, he does. I don't think he you'd does. have to worry too much about that. But no, I like what you did with it. And I kind of did a little bit of it myself too, because I, I kind of like the idea that when you first see him as just, you know, the, he's gruff. the dirty yeah. old vagabond. Yeah, he's he's kind of yeah. gruff and gravelly. And, you know, as as we get to know him better, his voice actually yeah. changes. We'll, we'll see that here in, That's in a true. minute. That is true. Yeah. Something about the way he speaks does change. And so I think as that happens. There you I go. That'll it, give me a chance yeah, to do that. There you go. It'll be like in The Wizard of Oz when we go from black and white to color. Yes, it'll be exactly <laughs> like that. 100%. <laughs> Except in audio form. Right. <laughs> All right. And not an astounding technical achievement for the time. <laughs> no, no, you're right. <laughs> oh, goodness, no. No, not a, this won't be a technical achievement at all. And it won't win any Oscars or get any kudos from anyone. Um, Aww. I, I'll give you kudos. Don't worry. Oh, I have kudos. I'm like a bard. I, I could eat this yeah, week. Woo. I've got 100 kudos, barkeep. Can I buy something? No. Oh. Nope. Kudos are worth. Kudos right. don't pay the so, rent, folks. No, they, they don't. They don't pay they your don't. bar tab at the Prancing Pony. They certainly don't. I like the the fact that we find out that Aragorn has, excuse me, Strider, whoever Strider is, uh, has actually right. been following them since they left Tom Bombadil. Yeah. This is going back to the very end of chapter eight. Right there at eight. the road. Yep. And if you yeah. go back to the end of chapter eight, the the dialogue that That's Frodo right. uses is is. <laughs> This is pretty much it. I think there are it's a spot on. couple of words maybe changed, but yeah, this is pretty much the dialogue. So yeah, go take a look at that. That's pretty cool. He was he was definitely there. He was definitely eavesdropping. Yeah. Definitely dropping some eaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though we didn't actually see a sign of him until a few pages later when they got to Bree. But right. Yeah. When he follows them after they get through the right. gate. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I like the fact that at the very beginning of the passage I read, we see Strider making a really oblique reference, I think, to the ring. He says, I have quick ears, and though I cannot disappear, I have hunted oh, many definitely. wild and wary things. Definitely. I, I don't doubt for a moment that this is him referencing the ring. Definitely. Yeah. He knows what Frodo's carrying. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I cannot disappear, but I can usually avoid being seen if I wish. Yeah. I can't do what you just did, and I know how you did what you just did. Right. Yeah. Are, are we square? I'm watching you. Right. You know, I mean, this is clear. Yeah. You know, Frodo's answer, of course, to all of this at first is just to continue to be a little defensive, like, why are you interested in my name? Mm -hmm. He finally starts acting the way he should have acted at the beginning, which right. is with doubt and skepticism and, right. hey, I I got to defend myself here. Mm -hmm. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is by maintaining my false identity. Right. Uh, and that's yeah. why Strider tells him, well answered. Yeah. He's finally learning. Good job, fine, basically. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I think that... There's another passage in the the Coker book right underneath the the one I read a moment ago. This is oh, just yeah, like yeah. a it's just one sentence. I noticed one sentence right below what I read earlier. It says step by step he arouses the hobbits to the dangers of their situations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that's exactly what he's doing here. He's luring them in and testing them and also trying to teach them a very valuable lesson in being more careful than they have been because yeah. They have not they been. They've not been all that careful. Nope. No. Just a, a tiny little bit of careful. Yeah. They have not been careful enough. Not nearly. No. 
he references the ring again when he says that obviously you're you're carrying a secret mm-hmm. that concerned me and my friends. And Frodo and you know Sam even jumps up. Frodo rises from his seat. Hey, well, hey, sure. hey, hey! Now, yeah. don't don't mistake me. That sounds like the kind of thing a black writer might say. It does. If, if you didn't, you know, if they didn't just speak in terrifying whales. But notice, <laughs> but notice at this point, he's not trying to pretend that there isn't something going on. True. He's yeah. gone from, no, my name is Underhill. I swear my name is Underhill. What are you talking about, ba- Baggins? Bag what? He's gone from that to, you're absolutely right. I am carrying a secret and don't you get near me or I'm going to, you know, scream or do whatever a hobbit does when a, a very tall man threatens him. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the answer he, is he not knows much. at this yeah. point. The answer is not much. The answer is just exactly. <laughs> I mean, coil in a corner. Just, oh, please don't yeah. hurt me, Mr. Man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. The warning about these black horsemen, he's telling them, look, you, there are people chasing mm-hmm. you. Now, of course, Aragorn doesn't, um, <clears throat> Strider <laughs> doesn't know that Frodo is already aware of the black riders. He doesn't, he's not aware since he's only picked him up from that moment. Right. Though I wonder, let me go back to that moment at the end of chapter eight and see if that's when he picked up, were they talking about the Black Riders? I don't know. That's a good question. Nope. No? No. He just says, I'm sorry. To, Sam says, I'm sorry to take leave of, of Master Bombadil. I can't wait to get to this prancing pony. I hope it's like the Green Dragon. Mary says, there are hobbits in Bree, just like, and there are also men. Mm-hmm. Frodo says, it's outside the Shire. Don't make yourselves too much at home. Don't get drunk in the bar and stand on a table and sing a song. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Ama- amazing anyway. that he gave that specific instruction. And Yeah. yeah. No, he, does, <laughs> he doesn't say anything about the writers. Uh, that's actually before they get there when okay, they're asking right. Tom. And that's when Pippin says, right. do you think we may be pursued tonight? Right. So, so they haven't mentioned this. So, yeah. yeah, it does kind of sound like Strider is mentioning black horse. And the way he says it, black horsemen have passed through Bree. He doesn't say the black horsemen that have been following you have passed through Bree. You right. Know, he's, right he's, exactly. he's giving them the information as though they have no idea what they are. And and Frodo's yeah. response, I think I'm actually reading this passage in a moment. Frodo's response, you know, he says, look, I know what's following me. I, I know these things that you're talking yeah. about. So, yeah, you, yeah, you don't know them well enough, but mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So let me go ahead and have you pick up there then, actually. I think that's a good idea. Okay. So I'm actually not picking up right there. I'm actually picking up a, a little no. bit before that. Uh, Strider is actually sort of just kind of talking through the fact that he, if he had gotten in touch with them sooner, he would have stopped them from going into the common room in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Barlamin wouldn't let Strider have access to the hobbits. So, Though somehow he managed to get in the room. <laughs> I'm just well, saying, after, I don't know how that right? happened. I mean, he, he managed to get in after. I mean, he, I think. Yeah, but do you think Barlaman like gave him the key? Well, now no, that you're going to have a chat with Frodo. Yeah, that's no. true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. How, why didn't he get in before? That's a good question. Or how did he get in now? One right, or the other. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, do you think he began Frodo? No, I don't think any harm of old Butterbur. Only he does not altogether like mysterious vagabonds of my sort. Frodo gave him a puzzled look. Well. I have rather a rascally look, have I not? said Strider with a curl of his lip and a queer gleam in his eye. But I hope we shall get to know one another better. When we do, I hope you will explain what happened at the end of your song. For that little prank... It was sheer accident, interrupted Frodo. I wonder, said Strider. Accident, then. That accident has made your position dangerous. Hardly more than it was already, said Frodo. I knew these horsemen were pursuing me, but now, at any rate, they seem to have missed me and to have gone away. You must not count on that, 
said Strider sharply. They will return, and more are coming. There are others. I know their number. I know these riders. He paused, and his eyes were cold and hard. And there are some folk in Bree who are not to be trusted, he went on. Bill Fernie, for instance. He has an evil name in the Bree land, and queer folk call it his house. You must have noticed him among the company, a swarthy, sneering fellow. He was very close with one of the southern strangers, and they slipped out together just after your accident. Not all of those southerners mean well, and as for Fernie, he would sell anything to anybody or make mischief for amusement. What will Fernie sell? And what has my accident got to do with him? said Frodo, still determined not to understand Strider's hints. Can I just say I love that last little line? Even the narrator's pointing <laughs> like, out look, Frodo's it's total totally obvious. Here. Frodo, come on. Yeah. Come on, Frodo. You know, but there's you should pick this up now. There's a subtlety in the language. He's determined oh, not is. to understand Strider's hints. That that suggests yeah. that subconsciously he doesn't want to understand. Doesn't want to know. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think he wants to realize just how precarious he is now yeah. because of what, what happened. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, even though he views what happened as an accident. Though Strider, I think, you know, buys Frodo's position that this wasn't a prank on Frodo's part. But when he says, okay, accident. accident. He's he's giving that word the ironic weight that it needs. He, oh, he, he is. It may not have been Frodo's intention, but that doesn't mean it was an accident. That's right. He do, It doesn't mean that it wasn't the intention of some entity. Right. And he knows full well that the ring has that that capability. Absolutely. That Definite ring at work moment. And, mm -hmm. and Strider's Big, aware of it. Moment. Yeah. Strider's always aware of it. He's he's very on this. He's we start to see, I think, Strider's massive wealth of knowledge and experience yeah. coming into play here. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, and we'll see more of that as he talks about the writers in a little bit. But and we also see a little bit more of that balance that we talked about in the previous episode with, mm -hmm. you know, Strider's sort of oh, yeah. self-deprecating humor, you know, yeah, referring humility, to himself yeah, as a yeah. mysterious vagabond, you know, he kind of... With a rascally look. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. He's kind of he's kind of making fun of his own appearance. Yeah, absolutely. We know that Aragorn, as he, as he progresses through the story, is going to be a bit haughty. He's... He knows yeah. that he is the rightful king, you know, and mm -hmm. and he knows exactly who he is and he's confident. But here he we do see that balanced with kind of an awareness of look, I know I don't look like much, you know, I look like a mysterious yeah. vagabond. I'm I clean up nice. He's yeah, well that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. Right now he's dirty, he's you know Oh yeah. Probably hasn't bathed in months. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All shaggy beard and He's not going to be getting any dates here. Well, Prince I Mark. should hope not. He's he's engaged. That is true. <laughs> that is true. But you know, he's she's in Rivendell. He's in Bree. Hey, no, no, not at all. What happens in Bree stays. She's in Bree. a catch, man. He does not want to risk. Oh, that. I know. No. Oh, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Uh, uh. No chance. <laughs> I should not have gone there. You know, I shouldn't have gone there, but no, I did. You shouldn't have, but you did, and it was fine. It was fun. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> it's all right. So, I love Frodo's naivete here, though, a little bit that, hey, well, you know what? These horsemen were following, but, you know, they missed me and now they're gone. <laughs> Are right. you kidding me? I know, right? Like, that's really going to happen. It's the, I think it's that naivete that we see at the end when he's still determined not to understand the hints. Mm. It's the assumption or the hope, I should say. I think that's it. That yeah. reveals itself in an assumption that all is going to be okay. Because Frodo... Like, uh, it, can't, it can't be this bad. He can't be foolish enough to really think that the Black Riders just 
passed him by. I'm like, well, I guess he's not here. Guess we're going to go back to Mordor. You know, that's not. Give up. Yeah, exactly. He, not he has happen. to know better than that. I think you said the hope. I, I think he he wants this to be true. Yeah. And this is more of the Amdir than Estelle. Let's put it that <laughs> totally. way. This is, this this is, is the this is win the lottery hope. hope. Yeah. Yeah. This is not like faith. This is just empty hope. You're absolutely right. And Strider, man, it he did does not mince words. You must not count on that, said Strider sharply. Mm -hmm. He absolutely says, you cannot allow yourself to even think that foolishly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, his little chat about knowing the number of writers, which, of course, tells us quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And then his his talk about Bill Fernie. So after he tries to explain what Bill Fernie would sell, I'm going to go ahead and pick up right after that. You can do as you like about my reward. Take me as a guide or not. But I may say that I know all the lands between the Shire and the Misty Mountains, for I have wandered over them for many years. I am older than I look. I might prove useful. You will have to leave the open road after tonight, for the horsemen will watch it night and day. You may escape from Bree and be allowed to go forward while the sun is up, but you won't go far. They will come on you in the wild, in some dark place where there is no help. Do you wish them to find you? They are terrible. The hobbits looked at him and saw with surprise that his face was drawn as if with pain and his hands clenched the arms of his chair. The room was very quiet and still, and the light seemed to have grown dim. For a while he sat with unseeing eyes as if walking in distant memory or listening to sounds in the night far away. There, he cried after a moment, drawing his hand across his brow. Perhaps I know more about these pursuers than you do. You fear them, but you do not fear them enough. Yet. Tomorrow you will have to escape if you can. Strider can take you by paths that are seldom trodden. Will you have him? Yeah. You know, if you're smart, the answer is yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see some of that in the very next passage, which I'll read in a bit. Yeah, we uh, will. There's a lot here that... There is. You know... There, we get all these, we get lots of hints that there's mm-hmm. more to Strider than meets the eye. I know I've said that a few times over the past couple of episodes. Because Yeah, but this one really does tell us, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. he knows all the lands mm-hmm. between the Shire and the Misty Mountains. He's wandered over them for years. He's older than he looks. There's a lot here about Strider's history. Yeah. Hints of Strider's history. Yeah, and, and maybe that's a, a good opportunity to do a brief sidebar on just how much Strider knows of, oh, of yeah, the lands. Oh, yeah, I think I mean, so. He is older than he looks. We we know that. And folks who know the story may remember that he is 87 at this point in the yeah. story. Yes, he is. Though, as I think Tom Shippey reminded us, Aragorn was not 87 at the point in the movie when he says he's 87. No. He was actually 88 by that he's point. He's 88. Because he had had a birthday. But at this but point in the story. March 1st. That's right. <laughs> at this point in the story, he is 87. The Tale of Years tells us that he was born on March 1st. 2931. And then after the death of his father, two years later, he was taken as Elrond's foster son. Then in 2951, as a young man of 20, Elrond revealed to him his true name and his ancestry. And that's when he began his labors in the wild. He meets and befriends Gandalf five years later. We learn that then he undertakes his great journeys and errantries. As Thorongil, he serves in disguise both Thengel of Rohan and Ecthelion II of Gondor. He has traveled extensively over the last 67 years, you could say. Yeah, you absolutely could. In fact, even recently, he's traveled quite a bit. 
This is as good a time as any, at least until we get to the council, to recap the timeline involving Aragorn, Gandalf, and Gollum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, a reminder, in the story right now, it's September 29th. Earlier this year, on February 1st, Aragorn, after years of searching with Gandalf, captures Gollum. For more details, let's go to one of our favorite sources, The Hunt for the Ring in Unfinished Tales. Here's a quote. Hoping to escape detection by any of Sauron's spies, he drove Gollum through the north end of the Emin Muil and crossed Anduin just above Sarn Gebir. Driftwood was often cast up there on the shoals by the east shore, and binding Gollum to a log, he swam across with him and continued his journey north by tracks as westerly as he could find, through the skirts of Fangorn, and so over Limlight, then over Nimrodel and Silverlode, until he came near the Karak. There he crossed Anduin again, with the help of the Beornings, and passed into the forest. The whole journey, on foot, was not much short of nine hundred miles, and this Aragorn accomplished with weariness in fifty days, reaching Thranduil on the 21st of March. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He's He's gotten around. and uh, That is a long way. That is a very long way. Now, this isn't directly related to Strider, but it's worth noting that Gandalf arrived in Thranduil's halls two days later to question Gollum, and then he left again on March 29th. Uh, he arrived in Hobbiton on April 12th. Now, that's almost 800 miles in a lot less time, but he had a horse. Well, yeah. And he didn't have, and he didn't have a golem. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that helps. And then sometime in late June, uh, Sauron attacked and Gollum escaped. We talked about that previously in one of our Meanwhile Elsewhere in Middle-Earth segments, and we will learn right. more about that at the Council of Elrond early next season. Yes, we will. But back to the text uh, and some of the more discussions of this section. His his own reaction when he talks about the terrible nature of the writers, when he says, do you wish them to find you they are terrible? This is interesting. You know, we see that he his face is drawn as mm-hmm. if with pain. His hands are clenched on the arms of the chair. Very strong reaction. And he sits with his eyes closed. Yeah. Very, very powerful emotional reaction mm-hmm. from yeah. a guy who so far has shown to be you know, very ultimately cool. Very stoic, yeah. Unflappable, mm-hmm. you know, sort of uh, very steady. Mm-hmm. So what happened here? Well, Hammond and Skull point out something very interesting. We aren't told how Strider knows about the Nazgul or why he reacts to what seems like a memory here. But it turns out that, and this is their words, the passage, in fact, is a shadow of drafts of this chapter in which Strider was still the hobbit Trotter, who had been captured and imprisoned by the Dark Lord and had his feet hurt by torture. So it's kind of a, a ghost of that old version. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, it, it makes you wonder, was Aragorn at some point captured it or imprisoned by the uh, it, by the Nazgul. It, it does make you wonder and and Tolkien leaves it open because he doesn't tell us you know that no, Strider one way or the and, other. yeah one way or the other whether Strider was captured by them but uh yeah it, but it, it it really does seem like a, a stronger more emotional yeah more visceral, visceral. reaction boy exactly than, <laughs> yeah we were both we going really there. say that at the same time yeah, yes we, we did, did. Yeah. definitely more so than you would expect if it's just you know, he's read Third the lore. Third knowledge. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. we know he knows this the is lore. Experiential. This is experiential. This, Very yeah, good. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It really is. So it does make you wonder just how he knows and what he knows. Yeah. But we do see that, you know, Strider is kind of pointing out, look, I know about them and, and you, you don't. don't. Yeah. And then, of course, his suggestion is, look, you're, you're going to be lucky to get out of town. You probably will because it's daylight. Uh, we'll learn later that they want to only attack at night. 
And so the only way out is once you get out of town is to get out on these paths that nobody else knows. And mm-hmm. I can do that. I can do that. I can take you down those. Yeah. 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 And so now the hobbits have to think about it. And what do they say? There was a heavy silence. Frodo made no answer. His mind was confused with doubt and fear. Sam frowned and looked at his master. And at last he broke out. With your leave, Mr. Frodo, I'd say no. This strider here, he warns and he says take care. And I say yes to that, and let's begin with him. He comes out of the wild, and I never heard no good of such folk. He knows something, that's plain, and more than I like. But it's no reason why we should let him go leading us out into some dark place far from help, as he puts it. Pippin fidgeted and looked uncomfortable. Strider did not reply to Sam, but turned his keen eyes on Frodo. Frodo caught his glance and looked away. No, he said slowly. I don't agree. I think, I think you are not really as you choose to look. You began to talk to me like the Bree folk, but your voice has changed. Still, Sam seems right in this. I don't see why you should warn us to take care and yet ask us to take you on trust. Why the disguise? Who are you? What do you really know about, about my business? And how do you know it? Fair questions. Yeah. Fair questions. Very fair questions. And, and Frodo really starting to get wise, starting to show yeah. the kind of good judgment that Strider's trying to, to that teach him. That if only he'd shown exercise. an hour ago, things would be so much better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that Sam is the first to speak. I think, I think we see this as kind of that continuing parochial nature of hobbits yeah. that we've talked about from all the way back from The Hobbit from season two. Yeah, definitely. That, what's that phrase that Tolkien uses? The mental myopia. Oh, that yes. That Tolkien speaks of in yeah. letter 246. Wow. Good job pulling that <laughs> one out of the hat. <laughs> Thank you. It's, yeah. it's just it's one that's it's, it's just stuck with me. That's yeah. the one where he's talking about Sam being kind of cocksure and just sort of yes. having more of that hobbit parochialism and and, and, and kind of a, a kind of a prejudice. Just sort yeah. of a, Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you I see it I, right here. He yeah, comes out of the do. wild and yeah. never heard no good of such folk. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it's dude, an unwarranted what, skepticism. Right. I never heard no good of such folk. Dude, what have you heard of such right. folk? I mean, like, you And don't who really have you know. heard it from? Anybody with right. any experience, really? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You have no real experience here, but but he's so right. sure of himself. It's uh, He's very confident. Yeah. I, think I've, I think I've said before that sometimes the, the Hobbits and, and Sam especially is kind of like the, the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. He doesn't realize just how little he understands the world. Yeah, there's some some real naivete there. You're and, right. and yeah, okay, Strider does look shady. Anybody can see that. Oh, of course. But, but uh, Frodo Frodo sees through that, doesn't he? I mean, he he does. He still very has his slowly, doubts, very yeah. yeah. You are not really as you choose to look. Yeah, I like that. That I do too. There's this depth of perception mm-hmm. on the part of Frodo here, as he realizes, as he recognizes, I should say that. That Strider is more than what he appears to be. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we're starting to to see without seeing it that all that is gold does not glitter. Mm-hmm. You know, which we'll get to soon enough. Very yeah. soon in the next episode. Well, yeah, I say soon enough, but it isn't soon enough. I, it's I, next it is, episode. Yeah, it won't be this episode. <laughs> I should tell folks. I really have to point out that Frodo picks up on a change in Strider's voice. He yes, says, he does. You began to talk like the brief folk, but your voice has changed. Yeah, this is subtle. But mm-hmm. we need to read this as some some change in Strider's diction or the the way he's speaking. 
yeah. is what Frodo picks up on and, and makes him realize that, no, this guy's not really what he was pretending to be. Yeah. I mean, and that makes sense. You know, we know how important language is to Tolkien's world and how much language is linked to identity. Absolutely. Strider is speaking in a sort of more of a Briish dialect, maybe at first. And mm. it's not something that I think we can really pick up on, but, you know, Frodo has just in the way he speaks. Oh, sure. And, uh, and that's, that's as good as sort of an assumed identity almost, you know? <laughs> yeah. And Frodo's starting to pick up on the reality underneath. And yet he recognizes that that generates more questions. Why? True. Why yeah. are you now different than you were yeah. then? Who, who are you? What do you know about? Right, right. About my business, about the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Strider does begin to respond, but I'm actually going to pick up shortly after that when Barnum interrupts. <laughs> because that's the fun stuff right there, right? It's it's so fun because usually it's Barliman who's about to say something really interesting and then and somebody, somebody interrupts else interrupts him. him. Now he's interrupting Strider when he's about to say something interesting. Yeah, that is ironic. At that moment, there came a knock at the door. Mr. Butterbur had arrived with candles and behind him was Nob with cans of hot water. Strider withdrew into a dark corner. I've come to bid you good night, said the landlord, putting the candles on the table. Nob. Take the water to the rooms. He came in and shut the door. It, it, it's like this, he began, hesitating and looking troubled. <laughs> if I've done any harm, I'm sorry indeed. But one thing drives out another, as you'll admit, and I'm a, I'm a busy man. But first one thing and then another this week have jogged my memory, as the saying goes, and, and not too late, I hope. You see, I was asked to look out for hobbits of the Shire, and for one by the name of Baggins in particular. And what has that got to do with me? asked Frodo. Ah, you know best, said the landlord knowingly. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Say no more. Say no more. I won't give you away, but I was told that this Baggins would be going by the name of Underhill, and I was given a description that fits you well enough, if I may say so. Indeed. Let's have it, then, said Frodo, unwisely interrupting. A stout little fellow with red cheeks, said Mr. Butterbur solemnly. Pippin chuckled, but Sam looked indignant. That won't help you much. It goes for most hobbits, Barley, he says to me, continued Mr. Butterbur with a glance at Pippin. But this one is taller than some and fairer than most, and he has a cleft in his chin, perky chap with a bright eye. Begging your pardon, but he said it, not me. He said it? And who was he? asked Frodo eagerly. Oh, that was Gandalf, if you know who I mean. A wizard, they say he is, but he's a good friend of mine, whether or no. But now I don't know what he'll have to say to me if I see him again. Turn all my ale sour, or me into a block of wood, I shouldn't wonder. He's a bit hasty. Still, what's done can't be undone. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness there's there's some fun things to talk about here yeah. some actual you know substantive material Parliament's solemnity and his first of all yes. solemnity later and earlier it just sort of he's very flustered you oh know, he's very looking, flustered looking troubled just it contrasts his his mood throughout this passage contrasts yes. so nicely with just how uh how Kind of silly it is. Yeah. How how funny Tolkien presents it. He's got this sort of like hand ringing. You can almost see him like with his hat in his hand and just kind of like, if Uh, I've done uh, any harm. Yeah. uh, This is, this is what happened. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's not even explaining, by the way, I have this letter and here's why I haven't given it to you yet. He's starting with the excuses first, which is hilarious. uh, uh, It's like this. Um, Yeah. yeah. Let me me tell you the the whole story. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I love the stout little fellow with red cheeks and the reaction we get. Pippin chuckles and Sam I, looks indignant. I, that I says that. so much right there about them and the way they feel about Frodo. Yeah, I know. I well, mean, and then, Pippin could have fun and, and tease Frodo, but yeah, Sam even just in this situation, so much. Yeah, that's true. Even in this situation, Pippin can still have a laugh over this, but Sam is like, hey, don't 
I'll talk down to my master like that. Never mind that it's Gandalf. We won't, you know, we don't, don't know right then, but yeah. I mean, what's funny about that is that, you know, then Gandalf goes on to say, well, that won't help you much. It goes for most hobbits. <laughs> and know. then Barley looks at Pippin. <laughs> <which is also laughs> like you. That's right. <laughs> Stout little fellow with red cheeks. Good stuff. My goodness. And Frodo, of course, wants to know who it is. And I really, there is a simple thing that if you blink, you miss it. A wizard, they say he is, but he's a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. whether or no. Yeah. In other words, wizards may not always be who you want to be friends with. I, I don't care if they say he's oh, a wizard, a he's a point. friend of mine. Yeah, that's you know, a good it's, point. It's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah that's Very a good interesting. point. It kind of reminds me of when the gaffer talks about Bilbo teaching Sam his letters, but meaning no harm, yeah. you know, meaning no right. harm. meaning no harm, mind you. Like, <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Like teaching yeah. letters would be meaning yeah, harm. Exactly. We, we, we would have the same reaction. Like, well, of course, a wizard is a great person to know. But you yeah, know, in this always. society, a wizard is not somebody you would necessarily want to be friends with. That's a good not catch. automatically. And of course, we'll get more about that letters thing here coming up soon. That's yeah. a really interesting. Piece. That must be why I had it in my head. Yeah, maybe that's a really good catch. I, I like the fact that the fact that he's now told them that Gandalf is a good friend of his. What does that yeah. tell the hobbits now? Oh yeah, absolutely. They trusted. should be able to trust him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, you know, if he does what he says he's going to do. Well, right. Not if if three he months proves later. that this is true, and right. Also, that Gandalf is hasty. I love. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. He's a bit of hasty. course he is. You know, these wizards are young, so of course they're hasty, right? I mean, that's what Treebeard would say. Young Saruman, <laughs> right? You know? Right. <laughs> you know, there's even a little bit of more wisdom, and I almost feel like this is a, a, another proverb. Have you noticed that Parliament seems to have a lot of them? I sort of think that what's done can't be undone is another proverb. It does sound like it. Yeah. Doesn't it? it? Yeah. And it's just. I mean, we yeah. a lot of times Tolkien puts them in italics so that it's really obvious that they're a proverb. He doesn't well, do that right, here, but it, right. you're right. It does sound like a proverb. Yeah. And Butterbur has this tendency to speak mm-hmm. in those. Yeah. Well, one thing drives out another, as you'll admit. You know, right. Yeah. He, he, yeah. You're right. He does have a lot of those. Just a bunch. All right. So this next section has some really good conversation bits after it. So I'm going to go ahead and have you pick up uh, when he goes ahead and produces the letter. It's addressed plain enough, said Mr. Butterbur producing a letter from his pocket, and reading out the address slowly and proudly. He valued his reputation as a lettered man. Mr. Frodo Baggins, Bag End, Hobbiton, in the Shire. A letter for me from Gandalf, cried Frodo. Ah, said Mr. Butterbur. Then your right name is Baggins. It is, said Frodo. And you had better give me that letter at once and explain why you never sent it. That's what you came to tell me, I suppose though you've taken a long time to come to the point. Poor Mr. Butterbur looked troubled. You're right, master, he said, and I beg your pardon, and I'm mortal afraid of what Gandalf will say if harm comes of it. But I didn't keep it back a purpose. I put it by safe. Then I couldn't find nobody willing to go to the Shire next day, nor the day after, and none of my own folk were to spare. And then one thing after another drove it out of my mind. I'm a busy man. I'll do what I can to set matters right. And if there's any help I can give, you've only to name it. And I love that because that's really a genuine offer of help. And mm-hmm. we'll see that he lives up to that in the next chapter. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we entrusted our mailbag to Barlamin, right? I mean, it might, that's absolutely might right. take For him a long years. time to give us our messages, but he's always apologetic he gets about them. it. And he gives yeah. us free stuff. So <laughs> That's yeah. right. You, I've got like a whole stable full of horses now. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> You know, for a forgetful man, I have to say this, he tends to remember the details 
with extreme accuracy. You, you notice that he too. remembers huh? yeah. exactly what yeah. Gandalf said. I'm off in the morning. Well, I mean, we didn't read that, but you know, I want a message took to the Shire. Have you anyone you can send? And he remembers exactly what Gandalf said to him all these mm-hmm. months ago. He just never got around to sending the letter. I noticed that too. It's like it's like once the the memory the, the you know the floodgates have yeah, been opened. Yeah, once it's triggered, like it's, just, it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's like it just happened. Yeah, right. Tons of detail. And then I thought that this little bit about valuing his reputation as a lettered man, and I know we touched on that a little bit ago with with Gaffer's line. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this is a thing of uh, you know it's a source of pride for him, mm-hmm. which distinguishes him from the rest of the folks of Bree, or at least for most of them. Yeah, yeah. Which tells you, once again, we're not in a highly literate society. Yeah. And it also tells us that Barliament is wise enough to know that, you know, his literacy mm-hmm. is, I mean, I guess most people who know how to read would say that in a non-literate society, but... Uh, That's true. It's a value. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely clear that there's not too many of them around. So it's something he is proud of. It's a, it's a, it's a badge yeah. of honor to him. I mean, I certainly never think about the fact that I'm capable of reading as being exceptional. No, no, of course not. Because, <laughs> because in our the, culture, in our time, we live in, right. it is not, it is not extraordinary. It right. Is, it is ordinary. Right. Uh, but, but that tells us that at least here in Bree, it is not at this time. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we're not going to read this next part, but, um, he, you know, he talks a little bit about, uh, the trouble, you know, these, uh, yep. these uncanny black men who've come yeah. and the fact that they're looking for a Baggins. I do notice as I'm looking at it now that, you know, he, he was able to withstand the fear of the Black Riders, wasn't he? I mean, just like mm-hmm. yeah. Maggot and the Gaffer. We talked about this some time ago. That's true. We we seem to think that maybe it was a Hobbit thing. Yeah. But, but obviously, even a man can do it, too. Barlaman can do it, too. Yeah. I mean, and, and here, Nob is terrified. His hair is all oh, stood on end. Yeah. But Barley, you know, bids the Black Fellows be off, slam the door on them. Yeah. Be off and close the door. I I think, again, we've talked about this, that. They didn't have the uh, fear cranked up to, yeah. well, to 10, let alone to, to 11. Let alone to 11. Because it goes to 11. This one goes to 11. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I think they clearly were in their, you know, recon mode yeah. earlier on. Yeah. Uh, just trying to gather information. And, but and still, you s- but you still, you still see this, the fear that they do strike in some. Oh, like absolutely. Nob, you know, Nob's and, hair is all stood on end. Yeah. And Nob, dogs you know, were yammering. We know some of the things Barliament says about Nob. He's not, he's not terribly wise. No, you know? Nob's he, not a, pretty a particularly bright guy. Yeah. yeah. But still, uh, I think it's significant that Barliament is able to stand up to them. I think it is. But he still doesn't really trust that Ranger Strider, does he? <laughs> no, he doesn't. And that's exactly where I'm going to pick up. He says, after talking about how those black fellows were asking questions, and that Ranger Strider, he's been asking questions too. Tried to get in here to see you before you'd had bite or sup, he did. He did, said Strider suddenly, coming forward into the light. And much trouble would have been saved if you'd let him in, Barlaman. The landlord jumped with surprise. You, he cried, you're always popping up. What do you want now? He's here with my leave, said Frodo. He came to offer me his help. Well, you know your own business, maybe, said Mr. Butterbur, looking suspiciously at Strider. But if I was in your plight, I wouldn't take up with a ranger. Then who would you take up with? asked Strider. A fat innkeeper who only remembers his own name because people shouted at him all day? They cannot stay in the pony forever. And they cannot go home. They have a long road before them. Will you go with them and keep the black men off? Me? Leave Bree? I wouldn't do that for any money, said Mr. Butterbur. 
looking really scared. But why can't you stay here quiet for a bit, Mr. Underhill? What are all these queer goings on? What are these black men after? And where do they come from, I'd like to know. I'm sorry I can't explain it all, answered Frodo. I am tired and very worried, and it's a long tale. But if you mean to help me, I ought to warn you that you will be in danger as long as I am in your house. These black riders, I am not sure, but I think, I fear they come from... They come from Mordor, said Strider in a low voice. From Mordor, Barlaman, if that means anything to you. Save us, cried Mr. Butterbur, turning pale. The name evidently was known to him. That is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time. And yes, it, it really is. It is very bad news, absolutely, yeah. You don't even want Mordor to be aware of you, let alone be sending their henchmen right. uh, to your little town. Right. Let's cover this. There's a number of details here that, we're, that are worth discussing. Quite a few, yeah. The reminder, of course, that if Barlaman had let Strider in earlier, things would have taken a very different turn. Yeah, yeah. You know, Barnuman does seem to show some decent judgment here and there, but boy, his lack of willingness to to believe Strider is interesting. I mean, yeah. he's got that same skepticism that Sam has. Yeah. And it kind of comes back, I think we see it a little bit. Remember when he's talking to Frodo and saying outsiders, you know, begging your pardon, that's oh, yeah. what we call yeah. folk from the Shire. Yeah. It's it's that same sort of Yeah, definitely. small world. Definitely. I mean, he says, you know, no accounting for East and West, meaning the Rangers mm -hmm. and the Shire folk, you know, that right. they're equally outsiders to him. And yeah, you're equally... both nuts. <laughs> right. Pretty <laughs> much. Know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Strider, I I think Strider is a little hurt by this. I mean, he, he really. Oh, I think he is. He yeah. definitely has. I mean, his response to Barlaman is pretty harsh yeah. honestly it is very harsh it's i mean a he body shames him for one yeah, he does yeah who only remembers his own name because people shout at him all day i mean not only is he body shaming him he's he's, he's so dumb he can't remember his dumb. own name yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. it's that's that's not entirely fair but i mean strider is just part, probably right, somewhere deep down hurt. he's probably tired of people always not trusting him or never trusting yeah. him i guess is the way you say that yeah, it's <laughs> yes, that is the way you say. It, always yeah. not doing that. Yeah, um, <laughs> there yeah. ought to be a way for saying always not. There should be like oh, yeah, one wait, word for never. saying that. Yeah, yeah, there should. Yeah, right. yeah. I just oh, uh, it's it is kind of harsh, but I, you can kind of see where Strider's coming from because he, mm -hmm. and we see a little bit of this later on in the Council of Elrond. Remember when he gives that great speech about? Yes, you know, yes. I'm I'm known as Strider to well, he says it, he mentions Butter to one fat man one in fat Bree. Man, yeah, yeah. Who, who has no idea? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he has no idea how right. close he is to enemies that would whatever freeze his blood or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, I mean, it's some terrible. Yeah, yeah. Strider, I am to one fat man who lives within a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart or lay his little town in ruin if he were not guarded ceaselessly. Yeah. But then he goes on with he comes he goes on with a little understanding though because he says yet we would mm -hmm. not have it otherwise if simple folk yeah. are free from care and fear simple they will simple, be they will be and we yeah. must be secret to keep them so yeah so he understands the importance of secrecy but obviously it doesn't it, hurt any less it doesn't it hurt doesn't any hurt less to absolutely. to be rejected like that yeah absolutely I mean here it's it here's here's Barlaman talking about Strider and he says if I was in your plight I wouldn't take up with a ranger. Uh, Barman, I'm right here. Right. Dude, I'm <laughs> I mean, standing right what you, here. What you mean is I wouldn't take up with this guy. Yeah. But you're not even, you're, you're pretending I'm not here. I mean, I wouldn't take up with a ranger. Yeah. 
oh, you mean me, the guy standing in the room talking to you? Well, I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a hint that Barlam yeah. sees Strider as other. You know, he's yeah, he's beneath oh, he does, even yeah. considering. It's it's okay to talk about him in his presence because he's just that. I don't know. Uh, he's just that yeah, untrustworthy. Right. He's just that. I, can't, I can't think of the word. He's, yeah. Mm-hmm. That much of an yeah, outsider. He's, right. he's just that shady. You know, it's okay yeah. to talk about him in his presence. He's, he's absolutely that unrespectable. So Barnum's got the questions, right? Why can't you just stay here? I mean, what's going on? What are they after? Where are they from? Mm-hmm. Frodo, of course, can't answer it all. I love that Strider doesn't hesitate. No, he I'm, comes, I'm not going to be secret anymore. Yeah. They come from Mordor. Yeah. If that means anything to you, you fat innkeeper, you. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the, the yeah, unspoken. It, 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 yeah, exactly. It, you're right. You're right. And it is kind of like, look, the time for tiptoeing around it is is past. They're from Mordor and you need to be scared. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And Butterbur's response is, is the right one. I mean, he. Yeah. Save us. Yeah. yeah worst, worst news. Worst news that has come to bring in my time. But but I do like in the part that, that you didn't read, you know. Yeah. He's, he's willing to help. He's, he's willing to, you know, yeah. he says, I don't know what I can do, but I'm willing to help. Right. And he means it. And we'll see that he ends up helping out in the next yeah. chapter. But Strider has some ways that Barnum can help. And you're going to read those mm-hmm. for us, huh? Every little helps, he said. And then I'll, I'll read the next part. Yeah. You can let Mr. Underhill stay here tonight as Mr. Underhill. And you can forget the name of Baggins till he is far away. I'll do that, said Butterbur. But they'll find out he's here without help from me, I'm afraid. It's a pity Mr. Baggins drew attention to himself this evening, to say no more. The story that Mr. Bilbo's going off has been heard before tonight in Bree. Even our knob has been doing some guessing in his slow pate, and there are others in Bree quicker in the uptake than he is. Well, we can only hope the riders won't come back yet, said Frodo. I hope not indeed, said Butterbur. But spooks are no spooks, they won't get in the pony so easy. Don't you worry till the morning. Novel say no word. No black man shall pass my doors while I can stand on my legs. Me and my folk will keep watch tonight, but you had best get some sleep if you can. In any case, we must be called at dawn, said Frodo. We must get off as early as possible. Breakfast at 6.30, please. Well, actually, the waffle iron and the toaster downstairs don't turn on until 7. Well, you uh, make them turn on, with- Butterbur. <laughs> And good luck with that wake-up call. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. You might want to set your own alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell I've stayed at a couple of business hotels that haven't been so great? Yeah, totally. Uh, (laughs) Even Slow Knob has been working things out in his slow pate. Now, just uh, for those who don't know, pate means head. Right. He's just a little bit. He's simple. He's not the sharpest bulb yeah. in the in the box here. Sharp. I just sharpest say sharpest bulb, bulb in the box. That's not much of a metaphor, <laughs> is it? Really, sharpest knife in the box. Yeah, brightest bulb. Not in the, the box. sharpest Either bulb in the tool work. shed. No. <laughs> I must be tired. Not the brightest fish in the pen. <laughs> wow! 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 That's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, just, wow. Okay. How badly yeah, can we mix our metaphors here at the Prancing Pony Podcast? <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, I, we, we, we don't want to necessarily see the bones that the soup is made of here. <laughs> but we <laughs> so record late. Yeah, we do. We do record late. So they're not going to get in here. Barnuman is absolutely determined. Don't you worry about it. I mm-hmm. don't care how tough these guys are. They're not getting past our doors. Well, then. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're... You're braver than you look. Yeah, no kidding. Me and my folk will keep watch tonight. Well, then I guess I can 
sleep easy. I hope it's a comfortable mattress because I'm going to need my rest. I got to get up really early. And I hope he's given a, a variety of different pillows because, you know, the, the ones that you get on the bed. <laughs> soft and then oh, firm. Too soft. And you just, yeah. And then what are, what's with those like four foot long pillows? How good are those are not useful at all. I can't really? like I love bundle those. them up. But I really I do. I love those okay. pillows. All they do is they just kind of stick up for like when you're lying down on it, they <laughs> stick up like two feet to your left I have, two feet to your right. I have really long pillows on my bed at home. Not that I want people to imagine my bed at home, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got the really long pillows. I've had it made like a mountain range with two snow white pillows for my <laughs> big, big fat, fat head. head. <laughs> oh, I love man. that song. Big time. <laughs> yeah, man, that's a great one, isn't it? Yeah, that is. <laughs> Snow white pillows for oh, my, my big, big fat, fat head. head. Yeah, I love that. Peter Gabriel So, I believe, was the first album I purchased on CD. Really? Just a, wow. just a piece of trivia, yeah. Yeah. The very first time I bought a CD, I bought two CDs at the same time. And it was that and U2 Joshua Tree. Okay, because those were both out at around the same time, right? So might have been a mm-hmm. little earlier, yeah. but... Because what was so... I probably had them on cassette, I think, and was just like safely buying music I knew I liked. Because, hey, I had a new CD player and like nobody I knew had a CD player. Yeah. <laughs> probably 88. Okay. So they were both a couple of years old at that point. Yeah. Yeah. My, the first... Oh, I was never on the bleeding edge. <laughs> <laughs> Still aren't. Not when it comes to trends and styles. <laughs> no, aren't. No, I'm not. As we make our 80s references while reading a book from the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, goodness. We're going to get mocked incessantly now. <laughs> my first CD. As well we should. Well, my first CD, I, I first got, got a CD player in, I think, 1990 or 1991. And the first CD I bought was Pink Floyd's The Piper at the Gates of Dawn from 1967. Oh, my goodness. Their, their first <laughs> album yeah. from 1967. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is hilarious. And I already had, like, three copies of it. You know, like, I had it on tape and I yeah. had... I think I might have had a, a tape copy from a friend, you know, because we used to do that back in the 80s. But yeah. Yeah. And yes, I just checked, by the way. Uh, so came out in 86 and Joshua Tree came out in 87. And that sounds right because I graduated high school in 86. And I probably bought that CD player in 88 as a sophomore in college. There so, you go. Yeah. There you have it. Anyway, just a useless piece of trivia that we might ask a question about at some mood. At some future mood give away meeting. a t-shirt. Yeah. Well, yeah. What were the first two CDs Alan bought? I really doubt that one. What's the first CD Sean bought? There you go. Or at least name the bands. That'll that'll suffice. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read the last passage for tonight's discussion. That's right, folks. We're going to leave it at a very interesting little uh, cliffhanger. And I'm going to go ahead and pick up here where Barnuman says he's going to go ahead and handle that 630 breakfast call. He says, good night. Now, bless me. Where's your Mr. Brandy Buck? I, I don't know, said Frodo with sudden anxiety. They had forgotten all about Mary, and it was getting late. I'm afraid he is out. He said something about going for a breath of air. Well, you do want looking after and no mistake. Your party might be on a holiday, said Butterbur. I must go and bar the doors quick, but I'll see your friend is let in when he comes. At last, Mr. Butterbur went out, with another doubtful look at Strider and a shake of his head. His footsteps retreated down the passage. Bum, bum, bum. Mary is missing. They'd forgotten all Hello. It's like, <laughs> there's oh, only yeah. four of you. How right. did you forget there about 25% one of, us, of your there. group? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And I love Barnum's response, though. Oh, you want looking after no yeah. mistake. You guys are acting like you're on vacation. You're probably <laughs> running for black hunt. riders. Yeah. That is funny stuff. 
uh, again, you want you start to wonder, did they really did they maybe drink more than Tolkien let on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe even Sam, who should have like gotten back and goes, you know, where's Mary? You'd think Sam would yeah, have done you'd think that. Sam but... would have been together enough, but no. I think they're all just a little bit out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that ale's pretty strong there. It's, it's Maybe after Bartleman get, gets his ale cursed here for forgetting to give him the letter, it might, it might be a little watery. It's a little bit like, what's the what's the movie a few years ago about, like, the guys who, like, go out partying and they get drunk and, like, one of them goes missing? Mm, I don't know. I missed that one. The Hangover, I think, maybe? <laughs> oh, maybe. That sounds like the kind of plot line of something like yeah. that, but I, I don't remember seeing it. Sorry. It just sounds like that kind a of A pop culture reference I don't know. You're like Tolkien, a pop culture reference from after like 1989, you know. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much that's true. I mean, if it's a pop culture reference from, I'd say probably anything after the 90s, unless. Unless it's like sci-fi 90s. or fantasy sci-fi, related. Sci-fi, right? Yeah. Exactly. Bab 5, yeah. the Star Trek universe, Firefly, anything like that, we're good to go. The day Alan bought that Peter Gabriel and U2 CD, he just checked out. From the world forever. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I mean, I think I was just listening to So the other day. So, yeah, that doesn't uh, surprise I, I, hey, me. Um, yeah. I'm... My Amazon Music playlist is like 180 songs on a classic rock playlist. And it's all stuff I'm... that dates back to, you know, like late 60s oh, to man. early Yeah, 80s. I mean, honestly, well, <laughs> I, I'm honestly, I'm this week, I think I've been listening to like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And <laughs> there like, you go. There you go. And like Peter Gabriel Genesis stuff from the early 70s. Yes. Like, you know. Yeah. The early Genesis. Yeah. Total prog rock. Yeah. yeah you bet. <laughs> so <laughs> my wife sometimes looks at the, the Amazon music history. She's like, really? That stuff again? Come on. Really? I know. Well, she likes some of it, but then every once in a while. I have to admit, I'm almost ready to go ahead and sign up for the Amazon music family plan just so I can create my own playlists and not have somebody mm. mock them. <laughs> because right now we share one and so judged if, if she's streaming i can't play and you know but yeah i really want to just avoid yeah, being judged yeah. like she's just shaking her head really like, back in black yeah. <laughs> i mean come on it says here you listen to this one song over and over again for 30 minutes on your way home like really yeah. really you're listening to money from pink floyd again <laughs> right. yeah that would totally be me oh i know it's I, I'm I'm being mocked for it. We have been rambling, and I think it's time to stop rambling and wrap the episode up. But I do like one last thing. Barnum's response: uh, he's he's going to go ahead and send Knob out. He's not going to go look for Mary. He's going to send, send Knob out. It's going to be dangerous. Let me send Knob. <laughs> I've got to I've got to stay here and you know and, and watch the pony because I got to make sure the black riders don't get in here. Right. But I'm definitely not going out there. Right. Yeah. Let's <laughs> so, send Knob. Yeah. That's hilarious. And now it's almost time for our footsteps, by the way, to retreat down the passage. Yeah. As we wrap up our discussion of the first half. I thought that might work. I liked it. uh, Of Strider. But be sure to come back next week when we finally get some long-awaited mail. Now, before we reach into Barlaman's rather delayed bag, we want to remind (laughs) you about the fellowship of the podcast. As you know by now, our Discord server is up and running. Once a month, our patrons come and hear our goofs and gaffs, and we've had a few of those tonight. Uh, yeah, our, we have. Our edits and our outtakes, not to mention getting a sneak peek in an episode weeks before everyone else. Now, in order to keep that humiliation amongst friends, uh, our Discord server is limited to patrons who are at the gift of Gondor level or higher. So if you want to listen in live during an episode recording, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. You can get access to exclusive content and PPP swag when you join up. And check out our next goal, we probably will have reached it by the time this airs, of setting up a monthly live hangout with us on Discord. 
And if you're looking for a new Tolkien book, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien or otherwise. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful for that. Folks, I know I say this in every episode, but it really is true. It increases our visibility. That gets us out there for more new listeners. That brings in more great questions for Barlaman. And it's been amazing. People are still discovering yeah. us and still sending us in oh, questions on I was just know, reading one today. Yeah. Some guy just found us and he's on episode three. And yeah. He's looking forward to catching up and thinking, wow, it's great. what a journey that it's, is. It's yeah. great stuff. And it's great to, to hear from people who are just catching up and they finally get to that point where they're caught up and they're getting engaged yeah. on social media. And really, that that creates that, that livelier Tolkien oh, community awesome. that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, speaking of social media, it's helpful if you share us there. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. Wherever there are Tolkien fans, let them know about us. Now, with that, it is time to see what old Barlaman has in the mailbag for us. Sean? Well, to start with tonight, Brian S. in Carmel, Indiana, wrote to us with a question about the names of inns in Middle-earth. He said, The inns we hear about in the area of the Shire and Bree are the Ivy Bush, the Green Dragon, the Golden Perch, and the Prancing Pony. Hmm, good name, he says. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do we know of other inns or eating houses in Middle-earth? Is there any significance to their names being descriptive of creatures or plants? Was this something common in medieval times or in Victorian England? I enjoy those names, especially the Golden Perch. Perch is delicious. <laughs> I imagine the fish and chips there are pretty good, yeah. I imagine yeah, it probably is quite good. Excellent <laughs> question, Brian. And we'll start with other inns or eating houses in Middle-earth. I think there are a few others, aren't there, Alan? Indeed, all the way at the end of the book, uh, when we get to the scouring of the Shire, we're going to hear about two other named inns. There's the Bridge Inn, which is right on the bridge over the Brandywine, which was apparently torn down by Sharky's ruffians to make room for a guardhouse, which Mary calls a dismal place. Now, about 22 miles further in, the town of Frogmorton had a good inn called the Floating Log, which the hobbits looked forward to staying at on their way home, but it too was closed under the ruffian regime. That's right. And there's also the Forsaken Inn, which is a, a day's journey east of Bree, according oh, yeah, to yeah. Strider. That's going to be mentioned in the next chapter. Yeah, and I've run into that in Lotro. Oh, cool. There may have been others as well. In The Hobbit Chapter 2, we were told that Bilbo's journey started out through Hobbit lands inhabited by decent folk with good roads and an inn or two. Now, these inns are never named in The Hobbit, but based on the geography, it certainly seems possible that one of them would have been the Forsaken Inn near Bree. But another of these unnamed inns, this is a little gem, was named in Tolkien's 1960 rewrite of The Hobbit. Now, that was documented by John Ratliff in The History of The Hobbit, and this was Tolkien's attempt to bring The Hobbit up to that higher epic style of The Lord of the Rings, the one that never ended up seeing the light of day. Right. Now, in some notes on that rewrite, Tolkien wrote that Bilbo and the dwarves stayed at the All Welcome Inn on the Hobbit inside of Frogmorton on the night of April 28th. Tolkien also commented that, the all-welcome inn should be marked on the needed Shire map in any new edition of The Hobbit. That's a deep cut of Tolkien lore right there. Boy, it sure is, huh? Yeah. I wonder if they have a AAA discount there at the all-welcome inn. <laughs> well, if all are welcome, maybe not. Yeah, maybe everybody gets the it. same discounts. I don't know. There you go. None, none of these exclusive rates. <laughs> right. There's one other named inn that I can think of far from the Shire. It's actually in Minas Tirith. Pippin meets uh, Bergil, son of Baragond, at the old guest house. Which, oh, yeah. judging by the name, it sounds like it was apparently an inn. It was located inn, yeah. in Rath Kellerdine, which is the, the Lamprite Street. And at the time, it was being used as a shelter for some of the boys staying in the city during the Siege of Gondor. But, yeah. uh, but that seems to be one as well. Huh. Now, 
As for the second question, why all these inns are named after creatures or plants, and is this something from English history? The answer is yes, actually. In Britain, yes, it is. <laughs> pubs and inns do have a tradition of simple but very colorful and very descriptive names that match a picture on the sign hanging outside. I mean, you can look at pictures of British pub signs in there. Oh, yeah. Colorful, descriptive, uh, just really cool pictures. Visual, yeah. Yeah, very visual. Now, according to the website historicuk.com, that's historic-uk.com, and I'll mm -hmm. put a link to this article in our show notes, some say that the practice goes back to the Romans, who apparently hung vine leaves outside of taverns to show that wine was sold there. Yeah. But grapevines were harder to come by in Britain, so when the Romans were occupying Britain, instead of vine leaves, they hung evergreen plants and bushes outside of taverns instead. And yeah. apparently this is the reason they say that names like the bush or the something bush, like holly bush or ivy bush, like we see in the Shire, that's still yeah. a very common pub name in England. Mm -hmm. Now, that story kind of sounds too good to be true, so I'm not sure, but that is definitely a story that, that I've seen. That's the story. I I've mean, seen it, it, it looks many, many places. Yeah, I've seen it many yeah. places. Now, what is absolutely historical is that in 1393... King Richard II passed an act requiring pubs and inns to have a sign outside to identify them to the official ale taster of the realm. File that under jobs I wish I could have. <laughs> the ale tester of the realm. Isn't that wow. great? I know. Uh, yeah. um, what do you do? I taste beer I, for the king. I taste beer, beer for a living. I guess, you know, to make sure that it's a certain quality, worth quality, the price. Quality, yeah. yeah. Make sure it's actually That's alcoholic. True. It's not just like barley water. It's that not like selling. American beer. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're speaking my language there. Yeah. There you go. But yeah. So they, they started hanging signs outside to identify the pubs. And since the majority of the population was non-literate at the time, the names had to be illustrated so that people who couldn't read could still identify the pub. Uh -huh. That started this tradition of naming inns and pubs after really anything that was easy to represent visually in a distinctive way. Animals, plants, household objects. You know, you get things like the yeah. bull, the bell, the rose, the hammer, the white horse, the prancing pony, and so on. The eagle and child, the lamb and flag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. that's another interesting thing. Eagle and child. A couple of episodes ago, we mentioned the fact that that was named for the crest of the Earl of Derby. And that was mm -hmm. another common trend after King oh, yeah. Richard passed yeah. that act was actually naming pubs after heraldic devices and coats of arms of local lords. Actually, huh. the White Heart was King Richard's own heraldic crest. Wow. And the White Heart is now a, a very common pub name in England. I did not know that. Fascinating. I like the idea of uh, pubs named after household objects. I'm thinking like, I don't know, the dining room table, the couch, <laughs> I, I the ironing board. I, mean, I, wouldn't you know, be I wouldn't be surprised to find some because, you know, it's it's one of those things that I I think if you yeah. study the history of these pub names, as time goes on, they get more creative. That's they true. They start to get yeah. more interesting. And, and Just to distinguish themselves from other Yeah, other yeah, pubs, exactly. Yeah. Just to stand out. So they start to. getting a little silly. And um, I mean, you can look online, just UK pub names, and there's some there's some really interesting ones. That's great stuff. I, I love it. Now, obviously, Bree and the Shire have that same tradition, which makes perfect sense for the same reason. Shire hobbits and Bree folk, as we've discussed before, they're they're just not literate on a mm -hmm. large scale. Yeah. We know the gaffer was concerned about Bilbo learning Sam his letters. And earlier, we talked about Barnuman valuing his reputation as a man of letters. Absolutely. Which, of course, means it distinguishes him from others in the community. 
Yep. So there you go, Brian. Uh, absolutely yeah. a thing in England. And then uh, that's why Tolkien used it. So, yeah. Well, next up, we've got a question from Daniel M. He wrote to us a few months ago with a question about Frodo's new friend. One of the main themes of The Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's works generally has to do with power, the ring, and that using or seeking power, even for good purposes, ends in corruption. I have oft complained about the depiction of Aragorn in Jackson's films as a weak and as a reluctant leader. Mm. <laughs> You're not alone, Daniel. Yeah, I've never complained about that. Never. Never, ever, ever, ever. This no. episode or the previous yeah, episode. <laughs> the last 10 minutes, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Daniel says it's a very modern trend. It seems yeah, so yeah. opposed to Aragorn's character in the book, who isn't afraid to whip out his broken sword and prove that he is a soldier's heir. Yeah. In light of what the work has to say about power, however, even when pursued for good ends, how do we explain Aragorn's character, especially in comparison mm. to the films? Some yeah. quick things that come to my mind, again, this is still Daniel, are that in the book, while he doesn't shy away from the kingship, he doesn't really pursue it either. Also, mm. being the king is who he was born to be, not something yeah. other than or outside of himself that he seeks. Could those be good explanations for why Aragorn doesn't shy away from being made king of Gondor, despite the book's repeated warnings about power? Hmm. Really great question, Daniel. Alan, yeah, why don't you yeah. start with this one? Okay. Well, you know, it's true. Aragorn is just being who he was born to be. That's right. He doesn't pursue power. He was born to play a role that he understands and accepts. Now, I, I think we mentioned earlier about how at 20 years old, Elrond explained to him his lineage and his, his destiny, if you will, his role, who he mm -hmm. was. Yeah. Now, this helps us, I think, understand why Aragorn is able to start from apparently nothing. We know, of course, that's not really the case. Right. And step into the kingship without becoming corrupted. I think it's worth mentioning here one of Tolkien's most famous quotes about monarchy from letter 52 to his son, Christopher. Now, this is a letter that's often quoted out of context in regards to Tolkien's thoughts on anarchy. Oh, right. But going yeah. further, yeah, it's that famous letter about, mm -hmm. you know, not, what did he say? Not uh, uh, mustache Not men whiskered bombs, men with whiskered bombs. Whiskered men and yeah. bombs, right. So here he says, the most improper job of any man, even saints, who at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. And at least it is done only to a small group of men who know who their master is. The medievals were only too right in taking nolo episcopari as the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop, to explain, that is, choosing bishops who profess not to want the job. Tolkien goes on to say, give me a king whose chief interest in life is stamps, railways, or racehorses, and who has the power to sack his vizier, or whatever you care to call him, if he does not like the cut of his trousers. Now, that seems to me to be a statement in support of having decisive rulers, people who exercise power comfortably and kind of natively and inherently, I guess would be a way to put yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, good way of putting it, yeah. But who have interest outside of exercising that power. Now, mm. This letter was written long before Aragorn was dreamt of by Tolkien, but maybe he fits this model to some degree. I mean, he is decisive. He knows his power. He's not afraid to exercise it, but his chief interest isn't to attain or even exercise that power. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but Aragorn's chief interest in life was stamp collecting. So oh, that's he true. does yeah. fit with Tolkien's first example. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least he had a, an interest in saving Middle Earth for its own sake uh, and not right. just for the sake of ascending to the throne. But yeah, I'd love to see a stamp collection. <laughs> I'm sure it'd be a really good one. Probably kind of wet, you know, from sleeping outside and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're all Which stuck Which means it's to all stuck together, that, right? Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, no, Terrible philatelist there. 
Oh, good isn't word. Philatelist? Yeah. Isn't philatelist? Isn't that I the stamp that collecting? The that's word, not yeah. coin collecting, is it? No, that's numismatist. That's numismatist. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. No, of course you're right. Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it's <laughs> he, He's not interested in the throne for the throne's own sake. And I think right. Right. in in regards to the idea that not one in a million is fit for the job of ruling, as Tolkien says, I'd like to add one of my favorite quotes from letter 144. This is a letter to Naomi Mitchison. And it's one of those letters about ennoblement when he talks mm -hmm. about how the elvish blood in the line of men was the only real claim to nobility. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, less than one in a million men may be fit for the job, but Aragorn is one of those who is, and that's just yeah. part of who he is. When he whips out his sword and proclaims himself as Sildur's heir, he's just stating a fact of his heritage. That's true. And his goal of attaining the throne isn't a matter of seeking power, and it, it's certainly not a matter of seeking power that he has no authority to claim. It's not like he's trying right. to attain some power that's not his. It's a matter of seeking to play a role that's been assigned to him. It, mm, it's really- Good way of putting a, it, yeah. It, it's a matter of Estil, and I, I think mm. significant that that's the name he yeah. grew up with. It is truly a matter of Estil, of hope and belief that he has a part to play. I mean, it's it's similar to his ancestor, Tuor, way back in the oh. first age. Well, that's a good comparison, yeah. And I think that is what helps Aragorn not be corrupted by power. You know, as as Daniel says, he doesn't pursue it. He's just sort of yeah. playing a part he's been assigned. He's just being who he is and, and being where he needs to be, I guess. Yeah. And if there's any, what's the word I'm looking for? Not ulterior motive, but if there's anything to be gained by ascendancy to the throne, it's Arwen. I mean, that's really his that's motivation true. here yeah. Yeah. Uh, is to prove to Elrond, is, is to live up to, to his role. You know, mm -hmm. Elrond's already yeah. said, this is your job. You need to be the king of the United Kingdom of Gondor and Arnor. And if you're not, you're not going to be able to marry Arwen. Right. Uh, so he does seek the, the, the throne for a reason, but it's not for the reason of the exercise of power. It's a personal goal. It's not about the exercise of power. That's a really right. good point. Now, I would, I would add one more thing. This is just to kind of clarify that whole um, uh, anarchy quote, the, the letter that we read earlier. When you look at Tolkien's mostly ideal Shire, what you see is this very minimalist governmental structure. It's not anarchic in the way we know it to be now, the whiskered men with bombs, right? right? This isn't showing up at the G7 summit and, you know, breaking windows and wearing black. Right, right. This is, it's really more libertarian rather than anarchic in our modern mm -hmm. language. Uh, there yeah. was a thane whose office was hereditary. There was an elected mayor, but neither of them... <laughs> actually did much, right? I right, mean, that's true. The fact is, individual hobbits in the Shire just went about their business without the need of somebody taking the improper job of bossing other men, or in this case, hobbits. So yeah. to tie that back in here, the story of Aragorn reminds us of Tolkien's acceptance of a rightful monarch, but the Shire reminds us that that good monarch actually does very little to interfere in the day-to-day -day lives of his or her subjects. So. Yeah, that that's a really good point, and it kind of kind of makes you think that you know in a in an ideal society, I I won't go so far as to say like a utopian society because the no, Shire is not no. that, but in a in an ideal society where people are generally good people, yeah, you don't need to boss people around. You don't right. need to keep people in line because people people will, will do, do the right thing. What they need to do, they'll go about their business without yeah. having to be bossed around. Yeah. Uh, there's a, that line about the fact that, you know, the they're the rules and they accept them as mm -hmm. such. You know, they yeah. when, when there's a rule, that's what they do. They're not going to do something in opposition to that. So. Right. Exactly. Very good point. Well, thank you. Now, we should have time for one more because it's a short one. Paul D. in Bristol, uh, the United Kingdom, as opposed to Bristol, Connecticut, I guess, asks, is Bob a hobbit? Sean? 
<laughs> oh, well, that's hardly fair. I mean, we haven't even seen him yet. He's only well, been true. named three times so far. Yeah. But I know that this is one of those questions that Tolkien fans argue about almost as much as do Balrogs have wings. Maybe not, <laughs> maybe not quite as much as what is Tom Bombadil. Oh, well, yeah. But here's the basis of the question. We know Nob is a hobbit because when he appears in chapter nine, he's described as a cheery looking hobbit. That's true. I would add hilariously bobbed out of a door, but that's oh. beside the point. Bob doesn't appear until the next chapter. And when he does, we are never told whether or not he is a hobbit. And so some people do believe that he's a man. Who nobbed into the room since Bob, <laughs> since Nob Bob, did Bob Perhaps, nob? Yeah. Yes, a dour looking man who nobbed into the room. Tolkien <laughs> cut that line for obvious reasons. Yeah, very obvious reasons. <laughs> so yeah, some people do believe Bob is a man. I don't. I, I think no. he's a hobbit. Mm -hmm. I think it may be an oversight on Tolkien's part that he doesn't say it. And probably because by the time we actually meet Bob, Nob has already been introduced. He's appeared several times and he right. was described as a hobbit two chapters earlier. The reason I think that Bob is a hobbit as well is because, well, first of all, Nob and Bob seem to be a pretty tight unit. I mean, they don't That's really true. have much of an identity apart from no one another, right? No. They're Biffer and, and Bofer. They're Dwalin and Bolin. Yeah, I mean, they're they're right. they're a unit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think Tolkien would tell us if Bob was, say, twice as tall as Nob. Or, you <laughs> yeah, know, that's probably true. Yeah. Had had long blonde hair that hung right. down to his waist, you know, something like that. <laughs> Having already established that Nob was a hobbit. Or wore I think, shoes. <laughs> right. Or wore shoes. Anyway. Had a great big bushy beard. There um, you go. Yeah. Now, having already established that Nob was a hobbit, I think the default should be to assume that Bob is one as well, especially yeah. since the point of view characters are hobbits. I think the fact that we're not specifically told Bob is a man suggests to me that he's not one. And if you're if you're looking for some, uh, not proof, but something to support this, for comparison's sake, Barlaman and Strider are both specifically called men. That is true. Yeah. The third thing I'd point out is Nob and Bob together give a parting gift of apples to Sam when they leave in the next mm -hmm. chapter. Not only does this seem like a very hobbitish gift to give, here's mm -hmm. some apples. True. Yeah. Um, it suggests if it was mushrooms, it would be a clincher, but just saying. Totally. That is absolutely right. Whereas if it was like, you know, I don't know, a bag of gold or something, that would seem mannish. True. But yeah, uh, it seems very hobbitish and it just suggests that they feel some sort of kinship with Sam. And yeah. maybe it's because he's the only other Hobbit servant around and, you know, oh, Nob's a Hobbit fair. servent. So maybe Nob Bob and too. Bob are Hobbit servants. Yeah, you're right. right. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. This last one is total speculation, but I noticed, I skipped ahead a little bit because I was just looking for like, just how many times does Bob even appear in the book? Mm -hmm. When the Hobbits return to the Prancing Pony later near the end of Return of the King, Barlaman says, Bob's gone, goes home to his folk at nightfall now. Now, we're never told why he's gone or why he goes home to his folk. Maybe that could mean that Bob's folk have been impacted by events in the Shire more than others, maybe mm -hmm. even more so than Nob. I, I'm totally speculating here, but one sure. possible explanation could be, I don't know, maybe is Nob a Bree Hobbit and maybe Bob is a Shire Hobbit by birth or maybe he has some relations in the Shire and, and so he's he's leaving to, to make sure they're okay. I don't know. I mean, that one's... I guess the the sketchiest one, but I think Stretch. there's a, there's a lot there. But... 
<laughs> Maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, unless you've got some bombshell evidence to the contrary oh, no. that I haven't come up with. Some bombshell evidence? Yeah, no. Some bombshell evidence. Very nice. I, I think he's a hobbit. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I do too. I, I, In fact, here's what I say. I say, thanks for giving all the possible reasons for Bob being a hobbit. So now I have nothing else to say except I think you're right. <laughs> that would be what I have to say. No, look, I, nice. I, I honestly don't know about that last point. That is such a stretch. I have to find a way to disagree with you somewhere. I, okay, I don't think he's fine. going home to the Shire or even Buckland after work each day. Uh, but I do think they're meant to be taken almost as a unit. And I, I think that bit about the apples, that really does kind of clinch it for me. I mean, it's a gift that they give him and they're giving it. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's a hobbitish gift. And there seems to be some sort of camaraderie there. Like, right. I'm giving exactly. it to Sam, not to Pippin, not to Mary, not to Frodo, not to Aragorn. Yeah. To Sam. Yeah. And I think that that, to me, that says, yeah, I, there's no reason not to. I think the, you, you started off on the right foot that the default needs to be to take him as, as a hobbit because Nob's a hobbit. Yeah. But. You're probably right. He's probably not going back to the Shire every night. That probably a, is a bit of a strip. That's a, a long commute. commute. That's a yeah. very long commute. Going yeah. back to Buckland, to Buckland, to Buckland, <laughs> going back to Buckland. I, yeah, I don't maybe think Maybe he's so. got some Shire refugees from the family staying with him. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe, maybe. No, yeah. All right, fine. I'm stretching. Right, I'm yeah. stretching. But fine. no, aside from that weak point, yeah, I think he's a hobbit. <laughs> I do. I do, too. <laughs> well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. And thank goodness, frankly, who knows yeah, no what kidding. crazy thing we'd come up with next. But please be sure to join us again next week when we learn that it is okay to look foul as long as you feel fair. Folks, thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it doesn't stop when the episode ends. See the comments, questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kirdan's Contribution Tier, to May in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, prophetic verse about your ascendancy to kingship to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Do you have yours handy? Because I, I can take mine out. <laughs> I, it's it's in a safe. Yeah, oh, okay. We'll, we'll try to get those into our next show, folks. Well, however long we have had, it is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends.